Good evening, all. Welcome to the December 11th, 2023 convening of the African-American uh, Reparations Advisory Committee. Um, Chair Eric McDonald, um, our Vice Chair Denise Hollins, is unable to join us this evening. As always, I want to thank uh, and appreciate our Human Rights Commission staff, Joel Stewart, Zach Manuel, and Janae Coates, John McKnight, and Amelia Martinez-Bankhead for providing technical assistance for tonight's meeting. Uh, we have a few announcements from our Secretary, Moki Meyer. Thank you, Chair. This evening's meeting is being held at San Francisco City Hall, 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place in room 400. Members of the public can join us in person and view a live stream of this meeting on our Facebook page. Public comment in chambers will be available on each item on this agenda. Each speaker will be allowed two minutes to speak. Remote public comment is no longer accepted, and anyone who would like to comment on the meeting can email reparations at sfgov.org. Thank you very much. At this time, I'd like to invite Member Carter to open tonight's meeting with our ancestral acknowledgement. We honor the gifts, resilience, and sacrifices of our Black ancestors, particularly those who toiled the land and built the institutions that established this city's wealth and freedom, despite never being compensated nor fully realizing their own sovereignty. We acknowledge the ex exploitation of not only labor, but of our humanity. And through this process, we are working to repair some of the harms done by public and private actors. Because of their work, we are here and will invest in the descendants of their legacy. Thank you very much. Uh, Member Landry, please read the Ramatush Ohlone Land Acknowledgement. One moment, please. Ramatush Maloney Land Acknowledgement. We acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone's who are the original inhabitants, inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of the land and in accordance with their tradition, the Ramatush Ohlone's never have ceded nor have lost forgotten their responsibilities as the caretaker of this place as well as for all people who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from the living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestral elders, relatives of the Ramatush community and by affirming their sovereignty rights as first peoples. Thank you very much, member Landry. With that, uh, Secretary Mokimai, call first item. Item number one is call to order and committee roll call. I will announce committee members' names. They will announce if they are present. I would like to note that members who are attending remotely do not count towards quorum. James Lance Taylor. Present. Tanish Hollins. Eric McDonald. Present. Reverend Dr. Amos Brown. Present. Rico Hamilton, Nicole Cunningham, Gloria Berry, Daniel Landry. Present. 
Tiffany Carter. Present. Wendelin Brown. Anite Ekinem. Present. Star Williams. Shakalo Kane. Leticia Irving. Present. Freddie Martin. At this time, we do not have quorum. We can start the meeting and we will not take action item number two. Excellent. Thank you, Madam Secretary. I want to remind everyone this evening that public comments should be related to the specific item uh, being discussed at that time and fall under the purview of this advisory committee. Um, committee Secretary has been directed to ask commenters to stay on topic each time. Um, and then cut the microphone if necessary. We don't want to do that. Um, and so we'd ask you to, to abide by the time limit that you have. Um, people providing public testimony should address their remarks to the committee as a whole and not to individual committee members or department personnel. Um, there, that is not a time for a Q&A. Um, so please keep that in mind. Moving forward, public testimony for this advisory body must be conducted in person, as you just heard announced. With that, Secretary Moki Meyer, let's call the next item, uh, given that we are skipping item number two until we have a quorum. Item number item number three is the director's report. This is a discussion item. The San Francisco Human Rights Commission Executive Director Cheryl Evans-Davis will report on their work supporting the African-American Reparations Advisory Committee since the November 13, 2023 meeting. This will be public comment and committee comment on this item. Okay, well, I think I will um, sit here. John's gonna pull up the, the deck for us there. I'm gonna share two um, two quick reports hopefully one is the overall and then i want to just share a little bit deeper on the um the effort around the hbcu so if we go to the next slide please john um yeah i'm gonna need to let's see so with regards to the recommendations, I just wanted to revisit again the, the recommendations that I highlighted that had been reviewed in partnership or in consult consultation with the city attorney and share updates on where we are with those uh, in general. And then I'll go specific in a couple. So Supervisor Walton's office is working on the formal apology. Um, the ability to establish the Office of Reparations, although the funding for the Office of Reparations has been cut from this budget cycle, we will continue to advance the work. Um, we'll continue to look at how we leverage existing staff. We're in conversation to um, to uh, shift someone to serve as our reparative justice liaison, which will be point person to advance and continue this work and continue to support folks while um, the city goes through its budget process. And then hopefully, as Supervisor Walton says, there'll be funding in future years to support a formal office. Um, support for statewide reparations efforts, again, having a staff position that is focused on the reparative justice liaison work will be able to help with that. Landmark preservation, Black historical cultural centers are work that we're doing to some degree, but again, having um, dedicated staff will help at that area. The gun violence intervention model is something that we've 
been uh, reviewing, exploring, and are also looking at how to leverage staff um, specifically on that work. And I think tonight the Department of Public Health may cover some of that work that is currently um, violence response and engagement that they are doing. If not, that is something that we can share later. Uh, staff already is working on the audit on the war on drugs policies. Um, tonight, I'll just introduce this uh, again, since we do have the Department of Public Health here. We have done anti-Black racism as a public health issue. Um, the committee has asked that we declare community violence as a public health crisis. That is something that we could definitely do through the Human Rights Commission, but also in partnership with uh, the Department of Public Health. Um, we have been in conversation with Department of Public Health around culturally responsive substance abuse services, and hopefully some of the work with Adrian Jackson will be able to support that. And we're looking to allocate funding um, to support DPH with that expansion of that work. We're also doing some work specifically with um, UCSF. Um, they've hired a new researcher who came from, I believe, um, North Carolina, who is doing a work specifically around um, generational issues with uh, substance abuse and being generationally responsive and talking about often in our communities that um, we'll say, I don't have an alcohol problem or a drug problem, so I'm not going to stop smoking in front of my kids or they got to get their self together. It's not my problem. And so she's doing work to talk about how we address that generationally. And so um, working with UCSF on that work. Um, increased voter civic engagement participation and support efforts to repeal Prop 209 is something, again, that the liaison could support the um, community with. HBCU satellite, I'll share a little bit more on um, support for our seniors and funding for certificate of preference holders, I will also share. We can go to the next slide. So with regards to the update on the recommendations process, I'll share about the two activations that we're trying to do that are connected to, and I just want to highlight and say that that work is able to advance specifically because of the recommendations from um, the committee, some of the work around health and wellness, um, support for seniors and funding for certificate of preference holders, and then the education campaign. So I'll go a little bit deeper on those. I will say as we go to the next slide, Throughout this process, I want folks to be very clear that um, we engage with the city attorney's office to ensure proposals are legally sound. So we have been continuing to work with them to make sure that whatever we do is within um, the rules and regulations of um, the authority and what's allowed within the city and county. So with regards to the activations, if we go to the next slide, um, one of the requests was to lease the Fillmore Center Heritage Center to qualified African-American business operators with connections to San Francisco for $1 a year for no less than 99 years. That was objective 5.4. There has been a process. Um, MOCD has selected um, as the lead Westside Community Services to be in that space for the first five years. They will have no payment and we are hoping that over the course of that time that the building can be given to them if they are able to be sustainable um, with their economic model. So that is something that our office, the Human Rights Commission and other departments will continue to support and help. There are 
there's a current RFP. We've encouraged people from um, that are interested in that to participate. I believe that folks have, and hopefully through that, we will be able to support them with the activations and things that they need. I'll share a little bit more in a separate deck later about the HBCU satellites, but I wanted to connect um, objective 2.4, create free educational pathways to recruit, train, and retain Black healthcare professionals with stipends, student loan forgiveness, and or affordable housing for Black physicians and RNs. We are working with right now, we've had conversations with Charles Drew Medical School in um, Southern California. They're very interested in having a satellite here. Um, we are working also with UCSF and University of San Francisco for at least during the summer months to be able to provide um, stipends and opportunities for them for internships and housing at one of those sites. So San Francisco State, USF, and UCSF are all very interested. And um, that's just one. We've got other schools. I'll share more in another slide deck as we go to the next slide. Um, just wanted to just quickly say around health and wellness, culturally responsive substance abuse programs. I mentioned a little bit about the work with UCSF and exploring generational programming, as well as the work that DPH is doing through um, the work that Adrian Jackson is leading. The violence intervention program is um, something that we're continuing to build out and have had discussions and conversations with um, DPH about how to do that. Uh, effectively. And then um, cultural centers, development of spaces that affirm and support the culture, healing, and restoration. Um, and so we'll continue to try and build that out and allocate funds. So as we go to the next um, slide with regards to compensation, and I know folks have asked the question. Um, so one of the things where we are focusing and working with the city attorney on what is allowable and what's legal, um, we are looking at the certificate of preference holders list um, that was created by the city and county of San Francisco and looking at how we prioritize in this fiscal year or next fiscal year to be able to give um, some sort of cash payment to the folks that have been on that list. And that is something that we believe within the next year we will begin to do and that in that process, we will be able to figure out how to actually advance and move funding for uh, individuals through a legal um process that does not um that does not uh violate prop 209 uh if we go to the last slide that i have just in terms of the updates here just want to share that you know um the idea around provide funding to sfusd schools african-american churches and other community spaces for wellness nutrition education and other health resources we are um i've been talking to um different folks as well as Reverend Brown around the potential of launching an educational campaign and trying to do that in spaces. Um, so I just wanted to elevate and highlight that. Um, as some of the very specific to the recommendations, I know that there have been some concerns and John, while I'm talking, you can go ahead and pull the other slide deck up. I know there have been concerns around um, the news where the um, Funding for the Office of Reparations was cut, but I wanted to just be very clear that I've had conversations with the mayor's office and the things that I have been sharing and highlighting over um, the course of this time will continue to move forward and actually um, will cost more than the allocation was. The funding that's needed for renovations for the Fillmore Heritage Center, the funding that's needed to be able to get programming activated in there will be more than that cost. The ability to potentially give um, 
funding or resources to seniors or certificate of preference holders to be able to give them funding will, you know, exhaust what would have been the cost of that and that we're leveraging some of our staff to continue that work. So just wanted to, um, to say that the work continues um, and that there is funding that is um, set aside to do that. So I wanted to just move through really quickly again, um, one of the main things that we've been working on is the um, advancement of an HBCU satellite here in San Francisco. Um, I wanna just thank you all for elevating and highlighting that. It is something that um, you know we had been trying to do, but until the commission, until this committee really elevated it, it did not have the traction or the support uh, needed to advance that work. So I, I'm just wanna share a few updates on that. So if we go to the next slide, John. Um, so, you know, the mission was to collaborate at this point in time with three to five HBCU and industry leaders to host events and launch projects um, where the HBCU students and graduates can attend, connect and benefit. And so we've started with this lighter lift mainly because um, we want to be able to launch something in the summer of 2024. And many of the HBCUs would need a longer runway than six months. So this is a way for us to build partnership and collaboration with them. Um, what the HBCUs want to know is like, what's the benefit to them? And so one of the things that they wanted was the ability to network, to connect with industry leaders in San Francisco. That's black wineries, that is black farmers, that is the tech industry, as well as um, STEM specific. So um, they want to be able to build that network. And then we're going to look at what we can launch uh, in the summer of 2024 with them. Uh, if we go to the next slide, it highlights where through these conversations have been identified as academic areas of interest. So agriculture, civic engagement, public policy, education, journalism, marketing and communications, and STEAM. Those are the areas that the HBCUs we've talked with thus far are interested in. If we go to the next slide, um, the immediate goals that we have, um, immediate is to host in February. So we've already um, identified February 2nd as a date that works for the majority of um, the HBCU leaders that we've talked to. Um, and then short term is to launch programming in summer 2024. Long term is a hub or formal space for one or more HBCUs to recruit, offer courses, and host students in San Francisco. And those goals are informed by what we heard from the HBCUs themselves, what would make them want to be in space here in San Francisco or what their particular goals are. Um, if we go to the next slide, it goes into a couple of stair steps. So our initial goals on this side to connect with the HBCU stakeholders, um, to host them in San Francisco, and then to develop uh, the opportunities. And then if we go to the, the next slide, we'll show HBCU representatives that we've met with thus far, Charles Drew University, Howard University, Morehouse, Morgan State, Morris Brown, Tuskegee and the University of District of Columbia. Industry partners, Thurgood Marshall College Fund and the United Negro College Fund who have very strong um, suggestions and have been helpful. And one um, industry partner that I missed here but is maybe listed somewhere else is the White House Initiative, HBCU initiatives folks who have been very helpful with suggesting other smaller uh, HBCUs we could meet with. And then San Francisco State, UCSF, and USF are all very interested in engaging. So um, if you go to the next uh, slide, 
Um, these are the industry leaders who have expressed interest and um, are looking at how to partner Accenture, Bank of America, Genentech, The Warriors, Google, um, P. Harrell Wines, Kaiser, and Spora Health. And then if you go to the next slide, it outlines the different government stakeholders that have um, we've engaged and are trying to leverage to help um, to build this out uh, and identify additional funds. Couple things to note for bringing many of the HBCUs to San Francisco to see the spaces and to engage. They um, they would need resources for travel. They need resources for lodging because their budgets just don't have that. So that is also um, something that we're trying to figure out how to leverage funds for. And then with regards to the government stakeholders working with the Office of Economic and Workforce Development to see if there are open spaces that we could potentially leverage and activate. So uh, if we go to the next slide, and then I, I may just cut it short just because um, there are a few more. Um, February 2nd is the date for the HBCU stakeholders to be in San Francisco. Um, and then we're looking at uh, potential activation spaces that they could look at. Um, and then, yep, I think that is where I will end. Thank you, Director Davis. Um, Kathy, let's go to public comment and then we'll come back for a discussion. Is there anyone attending in person who would like to join public comment this evening? You can approach the podium now. And if there are a number of members who would like of the public who would like to testify, um, you can line up against the wall with the um, monitors. And public comment on this item should be specific to Director Davis's presentation. Each member of the public will have two minutes to speak. Hello. Hello. Hi. Happy holidays. Um, my name is Miss Billy Cooper, and I am a 65-year-old, unapologetically Black, transgendered woman, and I am a community stakeholder in San Francisco. I'm a longtime activist and advocate and abolitionist and um, a community engager. I'm just curious, will bringing all these, this HBCU to San Francisco, will that come out of the money that's going to be um, allocated to us, the Black people? And what about um, this priority thing? I mean, um, aren't we all starting off on the same foot when it comes to getting this money? So who's going to be prioritized over who? And um, one more thing, real quickly, I'm also from the marginalized and low income and underserved community here in San Francisco. And what about all the people who are on the streets who deserve to get reparations being black, but if, they, if they're in different levels of capacity, will anyone go outreach to them to help them um, get a footing in this? And what about our, our black brothers and sisters that are incarcerated and in nursing homes who um, who've had strokes or impaired for years and years and years, and nobody reaches out to them. So that's, I have many more questions. Um, you can contact me at 415-424-1721. Um, Miss Billy Cooper at yahoo.com, M-S-B-I-L-L-I-E-C-O-O-P-E-R at yahoo.com. And hey, Amos, I remember you when I lived at 1400 McAllister. Hey. Thank you for your comment. Are there any other members of the public attending this evening who would like to comment on this item? 
I will get answers tonight. So I will um, just say we, the committee itself is not allowed to respond to um, public comment on the spot uh, because it has to be agendized. So some of those questions may be answered through the process with the, the committee. Thank you very much. Seeing no other public comment, public comment is closed. Uh, members, questions uh, or comments for Director Davis? Uh, can you get your mic on? I turned your mic on. Thank you. Uh, good evening. Director Davis, um, how have we thought about how we will engage SFUSD's college and career office in thinking about the HBCU and pathways and how we can connect? Or is that something that will happen once we establish if we can actually do the satellite here? I mean, that's a really good question. And if I'm honest and transparent, I would say it is often hard to engage with um, those partners that because it's something that we've done through opportunities for all, but have not done really well. Um, I think there is room to do that. I think we can definitely try and invite them in the space. The HBCUs want to use this as an opportunity to recruit as well as um, an opportunity to have placement and space here. So I'm open to recommendations and suggestions. I think we are leveraging, um, as you all know, there there is no current um, formal funding for the reparations efforts. So we're leveraging opportunities for all and other dollars to in order to support the HBCUs that are coming here. And so I think being as um, efficient as possible be because our time is limited with them. So anything that you, if you have suggestions on how to do that on the front end, I would welcome those. I will follow up with you on that because I do think that there is an opportunity. And I think right now as the college and career and readiness office is making some shifts in SFUSD, it might be a really good time to connect. Okay. Thank you, Member Irving. Member Carter. I just want to say thank you to the Human Rights Commission and Dr. Davis um, for your work in the HBCU efforts. Um, I'm glad to see as part of the education committee to see something actually being pushed through. And I think it's something that we all should get behind and support that can provide immediate impact to the landscape and the look of Black San Francisco to have young, educated um, students in San Francisco. And I wanna just say that I hope um, HRC and who's ever pushing these efforts keep the education committee tied into this and so that it doesn't get lost when all the big players um, get involved. And thank you again. Thank you, Member Taylor. Thank you, I just want to commend Director Davis and Dr. Davis for the work uh, that she's outlined here um, on the HBCUs especially. Um, uh, this is something that's I think close to me and Tiffany's hearts um, as um, something that can be a tangible outcome that could be long-term. Uh, it may not be as satisfying, for example, as cash stimulus, that a lot of people want, but this is very important. Um, like the Heritage Center, it's, it's brick and mortar, where we can touch and see the result of our work. And we and, and this is just part of the foundation. We'll continue to press on these issues. So I, uh, Director Davis, your legacy already, I know you got a lot more to do, but your legacy already is um, so impressive uh, for the work you've done and the staff has done here. Um, and uh, there are a lot of black students 
uh, in California who want to go to HBCUs. There are a lot of Black students in California that want to stay in California. A USF right now has a critical mass of students. I had the great experience recently of walking on campus, and I've been there 25 years. Um, I went to Lone Mountain one morning, and there was nothing but Black students walking out the building, nobody else. And I walk, and I just, I've been there 25 years. I've never seen this before. Just like those those students that were here that night, it was some of them, some of Dr. Davis's students. And it's, it's tremendous. And so um, a couple of years ago, and I'll, I'll stop after this, a couple of years ago, about 2010, there were more Black students who were accepted to the UCs, Berkeley and UCLA, the flagship schools, who rejected the UCs mm -hmm. and preferred to go to the HBCUs over the UCs because they wanted to feel welcome and wanted. And that's something that I think we can really do here. Uh, enthusiastically, all around the country, all of the HBCUs will get wind of this, all of them. And a lot of those students will be excited to come out here and study in California and in the West Coast, and maybe down in LA too, if if we make connections with LA, but certainly up here, um, uh, there's a, a thirst for it. I'll press our president, we can press other, other institutional leaders uh, to support this effort, but this is something that can be done. And this is, a, I think, a win-win-win for everybody. And I really hope that, um, you know, if you notice when you're driving around the city, the University of Pennsylvania is here. Throughout the city, a satellite campus everywhere, down by Market Street, down by the uh, pier, um, uh, by the ferries, is University of Pennsylvania, right next to the USF Coffee House, uh, 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 the USF uh, Folger Building. So, you know, we have models we have examples. We have outstanding people in the Bay Area who can put this together in a day. In a day. The curriculum, the big ideas, the funding, all of that can be sorted through quickly. Um, this is something that we can do. And hopefully, even though it may not be what we actually want as the ultimate outcome, it's 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 further than we were two years ago on an issue, something like this. And we made marked progress in a lot of areas that we could call reparations more or less or, or part of our efforts that are, um, I think, coming out of everything we've done. So again, thank you so much and and the staff as well for everything you put in. Thank you, Member Taylor. Reverend Brown. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the task force. I too join with uh, Dr. Taylor in saying we do owe great applause to Dr. Davis and why. Let's go back in history. Let's have a Sankofa moment. That preacher, that Baptist preacher, Reverend Allen Allensworth, in 1908, had the vision of a Tuskegee being in Southern California. But his vision, his dream was turned into a nightmare. Mm when racist whites poisoned the water of their community and this state was complicit in redirecting the railroad tracks so that that town would die. Hmm. We are going to have a resurrection. Maybe we've shot, as the old preacher said, for the moon that we have not reached in terms of reparations. But we have landed between the stars and we're on higher ground. Stars symbolize light and enlightenment. 
And that's what we need more of. And for us to have the replication of historically black colleges here in San Francisco. It's a profound statement and one that I trust we should all get behind and bring it to fruition. Thank you, Reverend Brown. Were you trying to get your... Uh, no, I don't want to say Okay. That. Okay, got it. Member Carter. I also just want to add at how critical it is for our Black students to be trained in tech and in STEM in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's one of the biggest economies in the world, and we have been left out of that. San Francisco Unified School District have not prepared our students for that field. And if we don't, across the board, not just in California, but across America, if our students, our Black students, don't get trained in tech, we will be left behind. Thank you. So I have just a, a, a couple of questions, Director Davis. Uh, first, I would just echo the appreciation to you and the team. I want it not to be lost on any of us that despite not having the budget resources that we had requested um, through our set of recommendations, Director Davis, as she has reported um, on all the areas that she is, she and her office are effectively moving forward um, despite the absence of those resources. So really, again, to be commended and uh, we are appreciative of that continued work. Um, Director Davis, on the COP seniors, two questions related to that. One, what's your sense of timing? And then what are you thinking in terms of um, the financial resources you'll be able to secure? Yeah, so um, I would love to be able to roll it out sooner than later, but sure. I think that we are working with, again, the city attorney on what is the best legal path and what's sound. Um, I am hoping to do at least, um, you know, this is my goal. And again, this is outside. I'm hoping to do at least 10 certificate of preference holders to go through that list before the end of this fiscal year. I'm hoping that we can do cash um, disbursements of $25,000. I think the reason that the certificate of preference holders have been prioritized and over a certain age level is because, as you know, we just don't have we don't have the money to do as many as as many as we would like to. This is an opportunity to work with the city attorney to draft something, um, to go through the process to understand how we would roll that out. Um, leveraging a list that was created by the city that is not meant to be race based, um, and to prioritize them. And so we are looking at. Um, $25,000. We're working with the city attorney's office on what that looks like and whether that is X amount per year that you were displaced and that people who were displaced but stayed in San Francisco would get additional, would get a higher amount per year than folks who were displaced and left San Francisco, just because theoretically we'd argue that staying in San Francisco cost you more than if you moved um, to Contra Costa County. Mm -hmm. um, and starting with the, the certificate of preference holders and with folks over a certain age allows us to do it in a way that doesn't violate Prop 209 while we develop the strategies to move it forward. So hopefully between now and say May, we can work with the city attorney to craft and develop um, the legal parameters 
to do that. And then hopefully by June, be in a process to start to identify folks and be able to um, start to give out um, funding for people who were displaced, lost their housing, and were um, impacted by redevelopment agency. Excellent. Thank you. I'm then going to the HBCU body of work. In terms of the February 2nd convening, who's the intended, intended, excuse me, audience or set of participants? Yeah. So initially I was like, we should invite every HBCU, but that is a hundred plus. And generally they do not have the funds to travel. So that would have required over a hundred. And then at the end of the day, we do not have the resources to accommodate a hundred startups in the next year. So we are hoping to secure three to five HBCU representatives. Um, already we've got representatives from um, Tuskegee who have made a verbal commitment from Morehouse um, and from Charles Drew and from Morris Brown. Um, we are still working through the list that we got from the, the folks at the White House initiative on the White House HBCU initiatives. So the plan is to have those folks in the room, the representatives, and most of those schools are planning to bring um, anywhere from two to five people with them. Uh, and then we want to have industry leaders in the space as well, because that was what really they wanted. And so um, some of the folks you saw on the list have already registered and plan to be in space. The plan is for um, Department of Environment, because many of them wanted to talk about what are the opportunities in climate or environmental justice. Department of Environment will talk about the work that they're doing locally, as well as um, a representative from the Department of energy or environment from the, the White House will be here to talk about that. The Office of Economic and Workforce Development plans to be in the space to talk about um, the work that they've done with the Conservancy of Music, um, mm. and the Music Conservancy, and to talk about like that shared effort to get them in space and to stand them up and to work on the building. And so we'll do some visits and things of that nature. And then the plan is to have a reception on the evening of February 2nd for um, black H for not black, but for HBCU alums from the Bay Area and the Divine Nine. And so again, trying to build both networks and partnerships um, and then uh, create something that makes people want to come back to San Francisco. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, Member Landry, then Member Irving, and I'd like to then try and close this item. Uh, thank you, Chair. Uh, Dr. Davis, thank you for all that information. And uh, I concur with uh, the rest of the body in terms of the HBUCs. Um, I would just, um, my thought is, and well, my prayer is that student debt and, and all the things that we covered when it was dealing with education is such a, a, a big one nowadays that I, I would hope nationally something is done about that to help students able to pay off this debt and not just continue to keep kicking the can down the road. I know that's not necessarily under our purview, but it's good to speak it into existence. Uh, I just wanted to um, just acknowledge that um, after, you know, meeting all these months, would it be far-fetched to invite the mayor's office to directly come and um, kind of share with us the thinking in terms of long-term with the uh, finances, the resources, because we have brought many department heads here, but uh, to my knowledge, 
No one's from the mayor's office have directly spoke to us. That's number one. Number two, uh, the last meeting we talked about, or at least I brought up the Fillmore Heritage Center monthly meetings, which I um, still want to advocate for that, you know, just going forward as we move towards March and uh, 2024. And I think that would help um, the community and kind of keep people uh, updated. Um, and then uh, let me see. Oh, that was it. Thank you again. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate it. Um, that's it. Thank you very much. So I'm um, sorry, I'm trying to remember. The first one was about the student loan debt. And again, it is technically out of our purview, but definitely can continue to have those conversations and advocate. I think if we get the reparative justice liaison, that is something that they can um, continue to work on. There's work that is being done in um, Representative Ayanna Presley's office. So we have engaged with them um, last earlier this year at the Congressional Black Caucus around that activation. With regards to the Fillmore Heritage Center, that is something that we can definitely, I, I just, can you just clarify, do you mean from the city side or from the operator side to have a monthly meeting? Well, I was, I was deferring to uh, whichever would be best in coordination with, of course, um, Dr. Brown, because I know we had it at the facility, mm -hmm. you know, at uh, Third Baptist, and I think that we're on the right footing uh, to continue to give updates, but that would definitely have to be coordinated. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I do think... Um, if not monthly, at least quarterly updates or meetings can be had from within like the perspective of how we coordinated that one. I think we'd have to um, ask or there could be a condition of funding or whatever to ask the operators, but that's definitely something we can explore. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Member Irving. Uh, Dr. Davis, um, Two questions. Let me slip switch them around. Uh, the HBCU fair, which I know the HRC has been a huge contributor and supporter of, ha usually happens in September of every year and has happened historically. So I don't anticipate it going anywhere. Maybe just to put it out there to start thinking about a part two. Mm -hmm. um, start this now, activate something summer, and then just figure out since the HBCUs will be here on their own, we don't have to pay for any costs. How do we partner with them then? Because I think it's almost 30 of them that show up. Yeah, so to that, we have, um, there are a couple things that we're working on. So after connecting with the HBCU initiatives at the White House, that that team, they actually do a HBCU fair that's, I guess, the largest um, in D.C. every year. So we're trying to coordinate and understand what they're doing. And then we're working with the folks who do HBCU Week. They are also planning. So I'll, I'll try to share a fuller list Um hopefully in January, of all the people who have kind of said that they're coming. But the folks who lead HBCU Week, um, and they've done that in different places, are also talking with us about the potential of hosting something in October here, and then have had um, some conversations with um, uh, with Reverend Freddie Haynes, the new director of Rainbow Push, around a partnership potentially with them in the summer, um, with the Creative Tech Summit with a focus on to member Carter's points around technology and activation and doing something very intentional with HBCUs in that regard. So there's some some there are some partners that we just weren't aware of that I think we have the potential to leverage to support that and to also think about um, this work. 
I think that's beautiful. Um, and just knowing that UCAN is there. But I will say the uh, the list of colleges that you have on here are often some of the colleges who don't come as part of the mm -hmm. September tour with UCAN. So it's like a you know, all the ways that we can get all of the colleges, not and not just the major ones that are sometimes our young people struggle to get into. But I think right. that's great because we never get them in San Francisco. Um, the second thing I wanted to ask, I, I remember in conversations with you, Chair McDonald, talking about um, philanthropic partners and just wondering and paying for the Office of Reparations, like who's our list when we were doing, you know, some of the research, we were talking about different partners and different people who might want to put some funding to here and just want to know, have we exhausted that? Have we asked them or how can we support in asking for fun funding for the office of reparations until the city is able to move funds to support it? So the short answer is we've not exhausted that list and we've not made a specific asks related to like the HBCUs. Except that I was going to say, <laughs> Director Davis perhaps has done some um, direct outreach um, to them about that. I would just say as a context, there's not a long list of folks who are ready to invest in this work, unfortunately. But there is a short list and we are engaging them. Yeah, and I will just say to that end, like we're trying to figure out how we um, leverage, you know, the San Francisco Foundation is very interested in the HBCU um, satellite piece, um, East Bay Community Foundation, Tipping Point are places that we've tried to engage and reach out to. I think um, with regards to something like an HBCU satellite, a lot of the corporate places are interested in talent development, talent pipelines. And so they um, might be willing to leverage some of their funding, but that we are, um, you know, uh, I, I will say for the um, for the February date, Genentech and Crankstart have already made a commitment to support building out at least to host the HBCU folks here. Um, and, and we'll continue to do that. And I think to the chair's point, like as we build that, that is something that we could theoretically pass over to the committee to continue to follow up. For like, and I think I was also speaking of funding for the Office of Reparations. Yep. So I know having something tangible like the HBCU, people might jump on a little bit faster because it's like I could see it as opposed to the long term of the Office of Reparations. But I remember as we were holding this for the last two years, we had a ton of people in the audience as supporters from several different communities that were not the black community. So yes. hopefully they can put some money where their support is. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So I see two more names. And let me just say again, we want to try to close this item. Um, and so please be brief as you can. Member Taylor. Sure. Uh, quickly, um, just something to think about is uh, that uh, Georgetown University, which is a Jesuit institution and USF is Jesuit, um, because the entire Jesuit mission in America was saved and purchased with the sale of 282 Black people in 1837 during the Great Depression. There would be no Jesuit mission in America unless these 282 people were sold for $2 million. And then everything west of Georgetown was purchased, including USF. So I think those 26 Jesuit institutions that are a consortium need to come up with a reparations plan themselves. And we can tap into that here in the West Coast. We got Santa Clara is Jesuit, Gonzaga is Jesuit, Loyola Marymount University is Jesuit, Fordham's in the Bronx, but that's Jesuit, Marquette. Uh, that, that's, you know, we can go to entire educational consortiums and ask for some kind of partnership or, 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 or recompense. 
Uh, and then lastly, um, another thing to think about is when students are from DC, they don't have to pay uh, California tuition if they live in DC. Or if you're in DC, you don't have to pay New York tuition. You get in-state DC tuition because of the capital, it's the capital city and it's not a state. So those students get a particular kind of tuition break. They are from DC, but they can study in Cali and get the same kind of tuition discounts that California students get. So those kind of incentives, you know, have to be tweaked to try to encourage people in terms of the, the practicality of the money part, because that's everything in education is the money. USF is, is moving towards $80,000 a year. It's a $78,000 a year as of this week. Uh, and we're not one of the most, we're not even the highest paid, uh, you know, tuitions in the country. Stanford, USC are higher. Or Pepperdine is higher. So um, that's the reality. Um, and I, I just wanted to get those two points in. Thank you. Thank you. Reverend Brown. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the task force. I should like to mention here, a long time ago, when this task force was birthed, I dropped a notion that we should not depend on just public coffers to fund reparations. And definitely with all of these billionaires in San Francisco, and the facts do reveal that there are more billionaires per capita in this city than any major city in the United States of America. So it would not do violence to protocol for us to, in principle, support a reparations fund and respectfully make the appeal, the public appeal, for some of these billionaires to drop some of that money. Remember, I.A.O. Shaughnessy, a great philanthropist, said, money is like cow manure. If you don't spread it around, it just gets stacked up over in the corner and stinks. Now, with all this money in San Francisco, we need to make the appeal and that four million and more can be raised. But when political campaigns start, folks come from all over the East, the Midwest, to the West Coast, down in Silicon Valley. I think that we as sons and daughters of Africa ought to stand up and say, us too, share some of that money. But we can't be quiet. We got to speak up. Remember, the will that sounds the loudest gets the grease. So please, let us not put this suggestion on the back burner. We need to put that out there and let them declare where they are by refusing or by complying and doing the right thing. Thank you, Reverend Brown. Member Barry. Thank you, Chair. I'll try to be brief and I apologize for my tardiness. Um, 
Director Davis, I uh, echo what Pastor Brown said, that we have been making the notion that we not just seek public funds, but also private. And at our last meeting, I requested that I personally work with your office on reaching out to some of the private sectors. And I would just like to know, because I don't think I can go rogue on this. I don't have the capacity. I don't know how, if you do strike a deal, how you even, um, what the protocol is to get that funding to a city program. So is there someone specific in your office that will be working on this that we can work with so that we can start setting up meetings with the private sector? So just to be clear, there's, you know, behested payments and rules and regulations around what the city can and can't do. And so typically when I'm in conversation with people, if they don't offer it up, I don't ask for it. And so I don't know that there's anybody in our office that would be in position to help do that piece of it, right? So I go and I talk about like what we're working on and then folks may say, oh, well, I want to support and these are places where I can give. Right. So I think that there's a, a piece that I need to check in with um, with uh, the ethics office on, because we're, you know, we're we're kind of limited in, in how we can ask for money. Yeah, it is challenging. And I would just interject that part of what we've also been exploring, and I'll say more about this under chair's report, but it's uh, as we talked about in our recommendations of standing up an independent body part of standing up that body could also include the establishment of a fund, right? That then could house or receive these kinds of gifts that would not come through the city um, and would not be challenged by the bequest behest um, um, requirements uh, of the city. So, and I'll, I'll say more about that when I come to my report. But we can definitely schedule a time to meet, to review. And um, I think that there you know, Mark Philpart from the hundred, the the Freedom Fund, California Black California Freedom Black Freedom Fund is interested in some of this, and so there are things I think ultimately, um, you know, there's information and decks that Zach and Joel and and Brittany and other folks have created that can be the tools that you all go into those spaces to meet with folks on, but not to jump out of order, but just real quickly, the slavery disclosure ordinance is the infrastructure for reparations in the city we established in 2006. And by the way, Ronald Colthurst, who I was a leader so in this, sad. just passed this recently. And he was the brother that brought everybody together for the slavery disclosure ordinance. But the slavery disclosure ordinance is on record in public. You can look at it at the office of the administrator, mm -hmm. city administrator, going back to 2006, documenting every corporation in the Bay Area. Bank of America is there. U.S. Bank is there. Um, Zion Bank is there. They all admit what they acquired. There's, this is not a mystery asking these. We could actually take the slavery disclosure ordinance and go to these private entities because they all they have to, by law in San Francisco, admit and do deep dives of their own into their coffers. If they an insurance company or a city bank comes to San Francisco, Citibank has to admit if it ever acquired black folk through insurance or anything else. So that's a fact here. That's 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 the law here. And what we're doing is building on that. And so there is already in place an infrastructure where the private corporations who admit their connection to slavery are supposed to give to a fund that already exists. It's the Slavery Disclosure Ordinance Fund. And I don't know 
since working on the project back in 2006, if there's a penny in it, I have no idea. No, but there's, again, that's one that, and we can have another conversation, but the city administrator's office is also wrestling with it at this point because of the new regulations around behested, whether they can actually go and ask someone to give money to that fund, because then it may trigger that they have to report that they asked for it. And there's a whole, um, and if it's somebody that the city already does business with, then they're prohibited from asking them for money. So there's there's some things we have to unpack. Thank you, Member Carter. And then we're going to close this item. Thank you. I'll be brief. Um, I just want to say on the record, um, it is Black culture that moved the tech world as far as social media and things of that nature. It does not move without Black people. We have not been properly compensated for that. And echoing Reverend Brown and the millionaires in, in San Francisco, um, how many of those millionaires are Black Americans? How many of those are Black Americans? So I'll close in that. And I'll call them out. Elon Musk, Zuck, Mark Zuckerberg, contribute to the San Francisco Black American, African American Reparations Fund. Thank you. Um, with that, again, our thanks to Director Davis and her team for continuing to move all, each of these bodies of work forward. So we will close item number three. Next item, please. Um, I just want to note for public record that at 614, we um, attained quorum for this meeting. Item number four is city department reports. This is a discussion item. This is time for city departments to report back on information requests from the African-American Reparations Advisory Committee. This month, representatives from the Department of Public Health will provide an update on recommendations from the final San Francisco reparations plan that are actionable over the next 12 to 24 months. This will be a presentation by Dr. Navina Baba, Deputy Director of Health for the San Francisco Department of Public Health for the City and County of San Francisco, and Tracy Burris, Interim Deputy Director, San Francisco Department of Public Health, City and County of San Francisco. There will be public comment and committee comment on this item. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. So I wanted to thank you all for inviting us. Um, Dr. Colfax is out of the country, otherwise he would be here, um, but I am representing in his seat. Um, and I wanna thank Chair McDonald for inviting us as well as the members of the advisory committee to provide this update. And also wanna acknowledge the work of Reverend Brown um, as the health subcommittee lead, as well as his work on um, the state reparations task force. Um, thank you, Director Davis, for your partnership and um, HRC's partnership. I'm joined this evening by um, DPH's Interim Officer for Health Equity, Tracy Burris, as well as Asa King, who is part of our Population Health Division and is the Deputy Director for Community Health. And finally, Dr. Hillary Cunnins, our Director of Behavioral Health and Mental Health SF. Before I begin, I want to acknowledge that DPH's work on disparities, specifically Black African health disparities, was centralized and developed under the leadership of Dr. Ayanna Bennett. Um, Dr. Ayanna Bennett has taken a job at Washington, D.C. as the health director, but she really spearheaded this work for many years. Um, we know that there is much more to do, and we appreciate the report from the advisory committee and the critical eye that it put on these issues. Next slide, please. 
So I want to begin with um, initially how our services um, provide support um, and health care to the Black African-American population. Um, San Francisco Department of Public Health has a health network which provides direct clinical care and has multiple service lines. Our primary care, which is um, where you go to see your um, your primary care physician, sees 14% Black African-Americans. Our whole person integrated care, which primarily um, uh, sees uh, folks that are homeless um, or are in shelter, sees 28%. Behavioral health sees 17% um, on the mental health side and 26% on the substance use side. Jail health sees 34%. Laguna Honda Hospital has 25% um, residents that are Black African-American. And finally, Zuckerberg San Francisco General sees 14%. Additionally, the department has a number of contracts. 80 million in contracts are with Black and African-American-led organizations across a variety of services. These include behavioral health, maternal child and adolescent health, population health, and HIV services. Next slide, please. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how um, some of our divisions are doing work that is specifically um, aimed at reducing the health disparities um, in Black African Americans. Um, and I'm going to start with ambulatory care, which uh, includes our primary care. Primary care has 11 clinical sites throughout San Francisco. Um, some of the sites are specifically located in areas where there's an, uh, a more population of Black African Americans, including Southeast Family Health Center in the Bayview, Petrera Hill, Tom Waddell Urban Health Center in the Tenderloin, and Maxine Hall in Western Edition. One of the uh, areas that I wanted to highlight is that there has been a focus at Maxine Hall on diabetes control, um, specifically as it relates to our Black African-American population, as well as our Latinx population. And through this pilot program, the clinic is providing outreach, navigation, and support from a multi-interdisciplinary um, team um, and over a six-month period, specifically focused on diabetes, and over a six-month period, um, people participating, our patients participating in Maxine Hall went from 0% control of their di diabetes to 40%, which um, is extraordinary in that diabetes is often a very hard disease to change. Um, so this intervention has um, proved to be highly successful, and we hope to um, further it in other, um, other clinic sites. Um, moving on to maternal, child, and adolescent health, there are several programs that are focused on Black infant or Black health. Um, so the first is our Black Infant Health Program. It serves women who are over 16 years or older, pregnant, or up to six months postpartum at the time of enrollment, regardless of income. And services are free, and they're provided by family health advocates, group facilitators, public health nurses, and social workers. They are meant to provide support um, for um, women undergoing pregnancy as well as postpartum. Um, we know that there are significant disparities in maternal outcomes as well as child outcomes um, after pregnancy. Additionally, there's um, a, the Perinatal Equity Initiative. This initiative um, is working to reduce the impact of racism on Black birthing people through home visiting doula support, hospital obstetric racism intervention, and public awareness campaign. And as part of that initiative, uh, there is the Expecting Justice work. This is um, work done through maternal child health that is a strategic focus area. During pregnancy and childbirth, 
that includes interpersonal and institutional, um, addressing interpersonal and institutional racism in healthcare and public health systems, as well as structural racism manifested as the racial wealth gap. Our Expecting Justice, um, part of that program included abundant birth, which provided um, income supplements to black birthing mothers um, during their pregnancy. And then finally, our whole person integrated care um, services predominantly focus on people experiencing homelessness. In, 20, in 2022, the homeless point in time count um, showed that African-Americans were disproportionately unhoused um, and overrepresented at 38% of the total homeless population. Um, whole person integrated care works um, to provide care to this population. Um, this includes Maria X. Martinez, which is an integrated health resource center in the Soma and Civic Center. Um, street medicine does outreach in neighborhoods with high Black African-American communities, including the Tenderloin, as well as in the Bayview Hunters Point. Um, they bring inf uh, health services into congregate shelters and navigation centers through the shelter health team. And finally, our street overdose response team um, in, in partnership with Behavioral Health is focused on reducing overdose deaths among Black African-Americans, and their clientele is about 23% Black African-American. Next slide, please. In terms of strategies around behavioral health, our behavioral health um, division is invested in culturally con congruent and competent services. Um, this includes uh, culturally congruent and responsive behavioral health interventions at DPH, um, civil service clinics that predominantly serve Black African-Americans. Um, we also are providing ongoing funding to our CBO partners to provide culturally congruent services. This includes the Lifting and Empowering Generating of Adult Children and Youth Program, um, Black African-American Community Health and Wellness Initiative through the Rafiki Coalition, Bayview Y, and Booker T. Washington, the Homeless Children's Network's Ma'at Program, and the Transitional Age um, Youth Engagement and Treatment through um, Third Street Center. For the opioid overdose response, as was mentioned, um, we are engaging um, through um, Adrian Jackson uh, with Black-led and predominantly Black-serving organizations to maximize impact. At this time, um, we just recently funded a substance use and education program for Black and other impacted re residents. Um, this was $2.25 million that was awarded to the Homeless Children's Network. For mental health supports, um, there is um, money and funding that goes to prevention and early intervention for children and youth in collaboration with schools. Um, this funding um, supports screening, counseling, and mindfulness, um, both on the mental health and substance use side. Our comprehensive crisis um, works with our street violence intervention program to coordinate and provide community building activities, conflict moderation, crisis response, and clinical support. Um, they specifically work after um, an episode of violence in the community. And then there's also um, funding that is occurring um, through the Dream Keepers Initiative to fund further community supports um, with our CBO partners on a community response. And then um, one other highlight is that we are funding four community-based organizations to support Black African-American um, pregnant, prenatal, and postpartum people for mental health care. 
And then for um, the last portion, um, we are doing in collaboration with HRC Universal Talk Therapy Partnership. And this is providing um, therapy uh, to um, Black African-Americans um, through UCSF. Next slide. So I wanted to highlight some of the work that we're doing with health and the environment. Um, in terms of community health and wellness, uh, for the Black African-American community health programs, um, our population health division is uh, has health access points. Um, these health access points are specifically meant to reduce disparities by addressing vulnerabilities through focused community investment. There is a Black African-American health access point, and these access points are meant to provide a wide variety of services from navigation to health services to behavioral health services and supports. We also have a wellness health initiative that integrates physical health and behavioral health, mental health interventions um, that is rooted in a holistic approach for individuals, families, and communities. Um, as mentioned, um, Booker T. Washington, Bayview Y, and Rafiki have gotten funding for this. Um, in terms of healthy housing, our environmental health section responds to complaints um, involved in substandard housing, including vectors of disease like rodents, bedbugs, and cockroach infestations. And we also respond to complaints involving illegal dumping, excessive clutter, or other issues around proper sanitation and hygiene. And then finally, um, importantly, lead, there is lead poisoning prevention that is happening. The Children's Environmental Health Funding um, is le meant to remove lead-based paint hazards from houses. The program um, focuses on specific um, areas within um, the city, um, including um, population areas where the um, Black African-Americans um, are predominant. In terms of, um, I'll move to the bottom of the slide, healthy eating, um, we do know that um, eating um, and um, access to food is really very important in terms of disease prevention. And we have a number of programs across the department that work on this. Our maternal child and adolescent health actually run our WIC, Women, Infant, and Children um, Feeding Program, as well as a Black Infant Health Grocery Voucher Program. Our primary care does produce prescriptions, and that's the pilot I talked about for, uh, for diabetes control. ZSFG does hospital discharge food bridge health. So those that are food insecure are bridged um, with food. Um, our HIV services provides Ryan White funding and bulk food purchase for those with HIV living in permanent supportive housing. Approximately 18% of the population is Black African-American. And then our population health division supports the yearly Feeding 5000 efforts, as well as soda tax funds um, that fund two organizations specifically focusing on the Black African-American community. In terms of um, other substance use um, issues, um, we do have a specific program around tobacco and tobacco-free project, and that's meant to engage and address party populations with the highest smoking rates. It's a partnership with um, our clinic, Southeast Family Health Center and Environmental Health to provide tobacco cessation services. Um, 85 of the participants identify as Black African-American, and within six months after graduating from the classes, over 90% of the participants are entirely smoke-free. And given the success of this, we plan to, explain, uh, to expand it to other programs and clinics as well. And then um, finally, our Hunter Naval, our Point Naval Shipyard work, um, we are advocating for community solutions to the state and national agencies. Regulatory authority sits with both our state and federal partners 
Um, there is a community advisory committee um, where uh, we can hear community concerns and gather information. And then our Southeast um, Health Center, Family Health Center, has um, also a resource in terms of educating residents on environmental hazards. Next slide, please. And then in terms of our racial equity action plan, um, we are committed to investing in a diverse and equitable workforce. We've developed internship and fellowship opportunities. Um, so for example, our IT division recently onboarded its third cohort of trainees in what we call the 1010 program. This 1010 program is a two-year training and development program for individuals pursuing careers in information systems and technology. The, um, the, the idea is with this cohort, they can then go on to um, apply for city jobs. Um, this year's trainees come from a wide variety of back backgrounds, including Black African Americans and Latinx, as well as East Asian. Um, and then we're also excited that 43% of the cohort is women, which we know are underrepresented in the tech sector. Um, we are working to eliminate racial disparities in key positions by targeting positions with significant underrepresentation compared to the patient client population we serve. And we're committed to hiring and recruitment policy policies that align with citywide racial equity framework. Um, we're incorporating community input by having communities participate in interview panels and reviewing and rating requests for proposals. Um, I also want to highlight that Behavioral Health um, no, is also doing a lot of work on its hiring pipeline. Um, it's prioritizing top five, the top five classifications with the lowest representation of Black African Americans, um, and these include clinicians. Uh, part of this will be um, in, in their hiring process um, using lived experience as a desired qualification, um, ensuring that interview questions um, have a cultural lens to this. Um, and that we include equity partners in all phases of the hiring process. And then um, finally, I just wanted to say um, that we are also working very closely with HRC on the Dreamkeepers Initiative. Um, we presented on that last week, but um, so far $44 million has gone out through um, DKI funding, mainly to other departments, work orders to other departments to do work um, to uh, further um, equity within San Francisco. I will stop there and happy to answer any questions. Sorry about that. Thank you very much. And um, what we'd like to do is go to public comment first, and then we'll return to any questions or discussion. Secretary McMeyer. Are there any members of the public who would like to comment? Please, please approach the um, podium. Each member of the public will have two minutes to speak. Pastor Aurelius Walker, uh, pastor of the True Hope uh, Church in 950 Gilman. And what I'm concerned about is how to reach the dominant population in these areas. Now, the plan that uh, I've heard you talk about just sounds very good. And I'm assuming that the committee has have taken that on or going to take that on and see if they can make it uh, the progress within uh, the African-American area. Uh, we have a health wellness, wellness program with UC. We were with them several years and had several churches uh, involved, involved. Uh, and uh, we were able to achieve, uh, we got a small grant, you know, would come to the, uh, the, that particular area, but it wasn't 
very much money. So I'm interested in learning, like the educational program. I don't guess I can talk about that now. Um, I was concerned uh, about that, uh, and I didn't get exactly was there any structure that you had uh, gotten together uh, in order to make uh, function work. Uh, and I'm not criticizing, but I should hear that. So same thing about the uh, help. And another point I'd like to make is that uh, with the uh, drug and alcohol, I have a spiritual program that I did. I have uh, also had also a special program that connected to the church uh, health uh, program and was able to get uh, oh, several people over drug and narcotics and I still have my statistics up. I'd like to explore that at some point, the spiritual part. Uh, I, I'm not for sure. Do you have any in mind to bring that in for those that would volunteer and like to look at the spiritual part of that? Uh, I'd like to talk with someone at some point uh, about that. Thanks very much. Thank you, Reverend. Our next public commenter, please approach the podium. Thank Hello. You. This is my first time here. My name is Daryl Kelly, and I've been in San Francisco since 1988. When I look at this SFDPH paper here, I am appalled because 34% of Black services is in jail. 34% is in jail. Where is the black health at UCSF, Kaiser, and these other hospitals? Zuckerberg has a 14%, one of the lowest on the sheet. Now, as my grandma said, all y'all doing is just open the salt and just put little bit sprinkles on the table. This is appalling for a black American like me been in this town for 35 years and to see that DPH is finally looking at us. It shouldn't have took this long for them to look at us like this. 34% is jail health. I ain't never been to juvenile hall. I ain't never been to jail. I ain't never been to prison. All because I had some parents that threatened me not to go to these places. And they and they made sure I didn't go to these places. They made sure I went to school, made sure I went to college. But I'm shocked that we're spending all of this money on jail health. And finally, let's go to these other places. Mission health and other places to make this a reality thing. So you haven't been in prison. Thank you for your comment. Hello, thank, hello, board. My name is Clint Grease. I uh, represent Safewater San Francisco, safewatersf.org. And uh, as much as uh, the Department of Public Health uh, clearly doing a number of things to re reduce disparities um, based on race, health disparities, uh, there's one that there are that they have continued to obstinately overlook despite our best efforts to draw their attention to it, and that is the incidence of dental fluorosis, which is a modeling of the teeth enamel at the age when teeth enamel is being developed. And it's a function of the consumption of fluoridated water. The fluoridation chemicals are poisoning our bodies, the entirety of them. And the one thing that we can see is the teeth. So a number of studies, the CDC is well aware of this as well. They 
explain it by saying that black people consume more tap water than white people. And there may be a genetic element, but apart from the explanation, they know about it and they're not willing to do anything about it. So um, please join Safe Water San Francisco to advocate for safer, healthier water for everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other members of the public attending? Oh, I do see one member of the public. Welcome. Um, hello, my name is Ann Rubin. I'm from the San Francisco Black and Jewish Unity Coalition. I want to say happy holidays and Merry Christmas, and I hope you all get some rest and best wishes for the new year that include fulfilling beginning to fulfill some of the recommendations in your historic report. Uh, we will continue to try help educate and build allies in the Jewish community and people of all good faith and goodwill. Um, we have a health committee and they wrote a statement. I'm not on the health committee, but they asked me to come and read it to you. Um, the San Francisco Black and Jewish Unity Coalition's health committee seeks effective implementation of the recommendations that support healthy lives for Black citizens. We are requesting that Department of Public Health programs, uh, so we support the Department of Public Health programs that are in the midst of fulfilling reparation goals, such as the neighborhood clinics, staffing, provider training, and strategic planning. Please don't delay action on recommendations the city can do now before building the reparations office, such as violence, violence intervention and providing mental health services. And with convincing sincerity, we would like to see the apology for health burdens of black citizens that black citizens experience and correct those with progress milestones based on improved health outcomes. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other members of the public attending who would like to comment on this item? Okay, seeing none, public comment is closed. Thank you very much. We will now move to questions from and discussion with committee. Uh, Member Barry. Thank you, Chair. Um, I too, like member of the Public Express, was disappointed by the report. The agenda says that this report was supposed to get back to us on information requests. And also I wanted to know more about which one of this whole body who the health committee was chaired by Pastor Brown, um, which of those recommendations are, are is the city health department ready to commit to? And I didn't see any except for the interns. Other than that, I didn't see anything about what we recommended for black people. And I was really disheartened to see what is being done about the toxic shipyard. To say in your report that you're advocating for solutions, the solutions have been there forever. Test us. You know, are we still the number one district, D10, with cancer? Are we still the number one with asthma? Are people getting tested on how much toxins are specific that you can only have in your blood if you live out there, that there's no other way to have that. Also, 
as of Monday last week, a new article came out. More radioactive objects have been found at the shipyard where they want to do a waterfront where it's near the new housing. I mean, it goes on and on on that subject. And it's really um, sad that it's stated in that report that you're sitting with the feds when the feds don't care about us. $25 million was allocated to San Francisco through Congresswoman uh, uh, Pelosi. Where has that, what was that money spent on? You know, I need answers to that one. Also, um, I saw in the news, I think it was this morning, that there's an issue which a lot of Black women could probably relate to, but I didn't know it was such an issue that it kept a woman from going into an ambulance, and that's our hair. So many of us are sick, and we're expected to keep our hair up to par to go to an appointment so that we're not judged and stereotyped in a way that other ethnicities don't comprehend why our hair might look the way it does when we are sick. So I would love to see um, cultural competence in the training as far as what Black women have to go through to even go to the hospital. Also, you mentioned that um, you guys are working on therapy and I, as a person that gets therapy and have been for years, know that in San Francisco, finding a culturally competent therapist is exhausting, painful, triggering, and the therapists themselves harm us. So um, I did find one through the Department of Public Health. And of course, he's so good. He moved on somewhere where he could get paid more. But um <laughs> Right. That's what we're dealing with. So that needs to be, I think, with your interns and your pipelines, Black therapists are a state of emergency need. Then um, I'm the chair of the Reparations Education Committee, and I don't see much in your slides on what's being done. I don't know what partnerships are with SFUSD, but our children need triage, therapy, wellness, uh, you name it. And um, that was in our report and not addressed at all by your report today. And last, back to the point about the interns, you were willing to mention that you were so happy that 40% of the interns are women. I want to know what percent are Black people. So I'll try to address um, the questions. I think the first was um, with the behavioral health clinicians, the therapists. We agree with you. We know that um, nationwide therapists, there's a huge shortage um, and that um, getting a, a person that you feel comfortable with, um, depending on your race ethnicity, um, is extremely difficult. And so that is one of the reasons why these pipelines are being developed. Um, and um, we're continuing to work on them in terms of um, ensuring that it's not just um, about getting behavioral health clinicians. It's about getting the clinicians that can work with the populations that we see. Um, and I, I think um, one of the things I wanted to also um, say is that um, as was stated and as, used, as, as you have stated, there is extreme um, need across all the health systems, right? So we are competing with the UCs, the Stanfords, the Kaisers, um, and really have to figure out how we can best support our clinicians to continue working with the population. Um, 
so we continue to think through that um, and, and try to figure out with our um, HR um, department, as well as with our senior behavioral health clinicians that are working on this, on the best um, practices to continue to recruit and retain. Um, in terms of the, uh, the, the shipyard, um, I, I do, you know, we do know that it's been a very long journey with the shipyard and there's, you know, it, it's not been an easy journey. Um, and that the Navy um, has continued um, from our perspective, not to communicate um, and not to provide and be responsive to the community's requests and needs. Um, and so um, we have, our, our role is really to advocate when the community comes to us and says, we are not getting the information we need to advocate to our federal partners and our state partners who oversee this, um, that they need to do more. Um, and that is also with our political partners too, to try and push to get as much information out there as possible. But often- Excuse me, um, you, you said you um, wanna get information out there. I think we do got the information. The problem is um, the proving that that area is toxic. So is there any plans to test the community? With, do, I don't think you need the Navy approval for that. So at, at this time, um, we are, there is not um, any testing that is um, happening, but we continue to have those discussions with our state and federal partners on what would be the next steps, as well as with our um, uh, colleagues um, in the academic world. And we will continue to push on that. So without the state and federal partners who want that land for um, gentrification and real estate developers to have, if you're having those discussions and those folks want us out of that neighborhood, isn't that like a mute issue at this point? Or can you proceed without the state and the feds to test the community for toxins? So I think um, one of the things that is complicating in this is that this testing doesn't happen very often. And so it is a very new realm. And that's why working with academic partners to really understand what the testing is that is um, that is needed or has been proven is what we are continue to do. Um, but it is not, there's not a clear answer from all of these different entities. And so we are working on that um, to ensure that if we, if we can do this and if we do decide for it, that we are not going in without having a clear understanding of what we're testing for and what we would do. Yeah, I highly recommend Dr. Sunside. I could give you her information. She has the whole breakdown. She sent out my blood for testing, got the reports. She knows the specific toxins that exist. And it's it's actually articles out there that you can Google to know what to test for to see if we have cancerous or any other type disease uh, particles in our bodies. Appreciate that. And um, I think one of the other points that you made, which um, I also read the article about um, how um, uh, Black African Americans specifically, they think about how they have to dress and appear before going to a healthcare provider um, because of the discrimination. And so, um, first of all, is it, you know, we have to realize that and acknowledge it, but then we have to do training around it. Because when you are sick and when you need a healthcare provider, as you said, the last thing you need to worry about is how you look. Um, so um, we continue to do those trainings, but this is a systemic change that is needed across society. And we, you know, want to partner and figure out the best way to continue to do that.
Oh, sorry. Thank you. Uh, Member Carter. Um, I want to say that being poor is a public health issue. It affects our mental and physical health. And I would like you guys to start looking at it like that. And as far as um, training and all of these things for black people that come into the doctor, I think it's simple. Hire black doctors. Thank you. Uh, Member Irving. Thank you. Thank you for your report. Um, so I'm going to offer a couple of appreciations before I give a little, little some concerns. Um, first of all, just shout out to DKI because DKI has its hands in almost everything that is supporting Black folks. And so that's just a thank you because to hear that that partnership and how much money, because I know that money actually touches the Black community. And when I think about all of the resources that are here, I'm curious and I look at those numbers, how much is really touching the Black community? Um, we talk about the grants that were given or the funding that's allocated. Um, I know some mothers who have been recipients of um, the Abundant Birth Project grants, and it has been a lifesaver, like a true lifesaver for them. And so that is uh, some gratitude because I can actually see it touching the ground and impacting lives. Um, and then for those outcomes around diabetes and tobacco, and yes, I too want to know how many Black women are in the fellowship, but to have women in the fellowship, I think is a huge bonus too. So shout out to that. Um, so you named a bunch of successes, and I think as all of us in public stuff, we name all the things that we are doing, but as a Black person who lives in Bayview-Hunters Point, as a Black woman or a Black educator in the San Francisco Unified School District, we are hurting. Our children are suffering, and so I need actuals. It's like we we say we're doing all of this. We're partnering with our schools. We do the maternal health I can see. Maybe not to the benefit of the way that we need to, but what are what are the actuals? And so we name some of those successes, but where are the gaps that you all are that you can name and say we have not yet solved for that, but this is what we're doing to go after it. And I don't feel like I saw that. I felt like we should be clapping and running out of here saying Department of Public Health is really serving our children and our families, and that is not true, right? There are there, we we are trying maybe Department of Public Health is trying, but what's happening? How are we supporting our children? what mental health services are in our schools and how do they access them? As a community member, we are in war-torn neighborhoods, right? We have the things that our children have seen. My daughter and I witnessed the murder out of our back window. I searched for therapy, could not find therapy for my child. She got therapy through an internship as she was learning about expressive arts therapy is how she got her therapy. And to this day, we're still fighting and working with partners to offer that, like from um, the Homeless Children's Network, who's trying to support my daughter in this moment. And so my question to you is, how do they access it? What are your actuals? What are you really doing within schools? And how do we show for it? And are Black people better off for all these wonderful things that were named? What are So you, we named the successes for diabetes. We named the successes for tobacco, which were huge. Can you name any other actuals about how are Black people better off in mental health? How many Black folks are being served? And how many children, how many schools are you partnering with? Sure, absolutely. And I appreciate it. And I do want to, um, I, I know that this might have seemed like successes. I want to say that there is so much more work we have to do. I just want to acknowledge that, um, that um, the disparities still exist and they continue to exist. And we have to really look at with a critical eye of what is working and what is not working. Um, and then in terms of, um, you know, our children, youth um, and families, uh, behavioral health, 
um, work. They do work very closely with the school district to understand the needs. And, um, and you know, we do have clinicians in our wellness centers, as well as funding going in for mindfulness um, activities. But clearly, there is an ongoing continuing need that we need to be able to understand. Um, I think especially with COVID, um, there was a huge um, need for mental health services that became um, very apparent and has continued. And um, you're right that we need to continue to understand how we're going to um, meet that need. And I will also say, as, as was mentioned, it is extremely hard to get culturally competent behavioral health clinicians. Um, and so we have to look at other resources, right? Um, are there ways that we can work with um, community leaders and community members that can act as um, not not therapists, but as supports to our children, right? Um, and so I think there's all sorts of different models that we really need to work with the community on to understand and, and to understand what is working. Um, so as you're saying, to get the data on those outcomes. With all due respect, I think what I keep hearing and even in the comments to my colleagues or the a fellow um, committee members was we need to study it. We need to research it. We know. We know, you all know, you all are experts in this field. So what is the, what is like, yep, I still got to study it and I need to be proactive because right now children are not well. Children are not succeeding. Children will never benefit from reparations because they are not well. They are not going to become healthy adults. And I don't know how else we can study and research it. We can just spend time at any one of our San Francisco public schools, sit in the office and know that children are not well. We don't need to research it anymore. So what is it that you have that we can do? Is it a funding gap? What is it? And then I look at the numbers of like 14% or the number of where the clinics are located. These are, these are neighborhoods where those are black folks. So why do we only have 14%? What what's what are they receiving services somewhere else? Do we know those numbers? Do we know the outreach efforts? Like, I just don't feel like, and I again, as someone who works in public service, I feel like I can't do it all either. And I get that, but I feel like you all are bigger than anything I could do, and you could be doing something more. Um, and I, I want to clarify, I don't mean that we need to research it anymore. We need to understand what we are, what interventions are not working. Right, because what we are hearing is that we are not meeting the need. And so that's not a study. That's, uh, that is like, as you are saying, you're not meeting the need. And so what is the intervention that will meet the need? Or what can we try to meet that need? Um, and we, we often work with our CBO partners and our, our, you know, our other base partners, school base partners, um, to try to meet that need. But clearly there's a gap there in terms of why it's not working. So that's what we need to understand, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be intervening. Even if it's not working, we can try something. And if that doesn't work, then we move on to the next thing. It's not about studying and researching every single one. Thank you. I agree, I agree with increased access. Even if we can't find black folks to do it right now or cultural people who look like us, mm -hmm. right? What are we doing to train the therapists that are there? What are we doing to recruit? As you said, maybe it's community members, maybe it's folks who are already doing this to give them stipends, to work a little more, to see more of our children. And how are we pushing into the places where our children are? They are in these schools. We know we can find them there. So how do we push in to support them? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Member Landry. Yes. Uh, so thank you. I uh, just wanted to, uh, uh, first of all, I think in terms of the Bayview Hunters Point shipyard, um, me being a former rest rep, rep, rap member, 
and dealing with the company of Lenore and dealing with all the issues uh, of the toxicities, uh, I think this city need to come clean <laughs> of the shipyard. And turn. We need more, um, not, not um, just actions when it comes to the cleanup, but we need to be clear about what done happened and where are we going, you know, from here? Because when I hear um, some of our members speak, you know, all these reports and we, you know, we've been meeting for now 20 something months and we didn't just, I mean, we actually have done the work for the city, if you really want to think about it, because we still got other reports that the city is not addressing. Out migration, war on drugs. I mean, the list is long. So it's a little disheartening to hear department heads come before us. And, you know, and when you speak towards our recommendations, it's an update, but you're not clearly addressing the reparation recommendations we have made. I'm looking at plenty of them here. I didn't hear anything about, for example, uh, um, declaring the community uh, violence as a public health crisis. That's a simple one. I mean, why wouldn't the San Francisco want to declare af after all this information and all this time? So some of these things is almost like disrespectful at this point to uh, continue to get reports like this. And it's, I want to take it up a little further. It's, it's, it's a black eye on the leadership at top. And I think I can say that at this point, because how many reports like this <laughs> do, do the city have and, and, and have possessed and came over and over to not just bodies like this, but other, you know, committees and task forces and say, we're doing this, we're doing that. But at the end of the day, we're not seeing it on the ground. I'm 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 from San Francisco. I'm 55 years old. I've been to plenty of public health hearings. And unfortunately, I think if we cannot get department heads to apologize, number one, and recognize that you have uh, autonomy outside of all the other agencies, including the Board of Supervisors, and we expect for everyone to recognize recommendations of this reparations task force more than just lip service. Uh, yeah, like what member Barry was saying in terms of the shipyard, that's a big one. It's a super fun site, right? The whole world is talking about the Bayview Hunters Point shipyard. And if we can't, you know, be strong when it comes to dealing with the Navy, we asked for a, a, a complete shutdown of the shipyard back in 2008 because we recognized that it was too much politics being played while people was dying. So testing should not, it should be a no brainer. That one is a no brainer. We can't go forward until we know how, who have suffered out there. Hey, I might even be contaminated because I was out there during that time of the shipyard and all the grading by the Lenora corporations. But let me just say this. There's one more thing, too, about the apology letter. Start there. And I think us as a body, we need to kind of hold it. Yeah, I know we only had one more meeting left, so we got to get it in now. But 
it starts with recognizing the harms, the structural racism that we've been talking about these last two years. What are we sitting here for? It starts there. And then we will see policies and we'll see this city have more of a will instead of just constantly coming and giving us these updates. And it's really not addressing the recommendations we have put forth. What is the position of the Department of Health when it comes to the recommendations? Not just the health subcommittee, but even the policy subcommittee, the education subcommittee. Because I didn't hear nothing about that. So, you know, we thank you. <laughs> but at this point, directly answering the recommendations is what we're looking for. I would, I would, I, personally, I would have felt better if all the department heads coming before us would go line by line, each recommendation, this is the position of this department. <clears throat> you have any? No, I, I appreciate that. Um, I I think, you know, when we look at the recommendations, they're, they're holistic in nature and they do need, like you said, multiple agencies to come together to address it. Um, and so, um, you know, we, we can think about it as a citywide response, which I think you've discussed here. I yield. Thank you, Thank sir. You. Thank you. Reverend Brown. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the task force. Uh, madam, there's a whole lot of low-hanging fruit that you all have not enabled us to pick. And there's nothing in terms of personal attack on you. I'm just engaging in truth-telling. The truth is, we've had far too many meetings with the director of this department about health issues. And we have presented the facts. We don't need no more facts. We don't need any more analysis. I hate to repeat it, but I, I say it again. Dr. King was right. We make things a paralysis of analysis when it comes to delivering for black folk. That's it. So I'm sorry, Reverend Brown, just one second. As much as I enjoy good church, the call and response, if I could ask us to just keep that down while we can get so that we can get through the discussion, that would be great. Thank you. So I, I can give you, for instance, when it comes to mental health, for young people at the middle and high school levels. This department hasn't done nothing. It's not doing anything. It's a lick and a promise. And yet, as a pastor and other pastors too, going throughout this city and being at the listening post with our congregants, these children are experiencing a whole lot of pain. And it's not their fault. They live in a culture of neglect. George Bernard Shaw said a long time ago, and I repeat him, quote him again. I wonder how many people in my lifetime have I just 
looked at, but did not see. How many people in my lifetime have I just looked at, but did not see? And we don't have to talk about slavery. We can go way back there and talk about those inhumane, brutal, downright evil acts that were done against us because our skin is black. That went on for 240 years and worldwide for 400 years. We don't have to go back there. Let's come to the present moment, the now. San Francisco ought to be ashamed of itself. That it goes around here strutting like a peacock, always talking about being progressive and liberal. But when it comes to black people, there's not been any liberality for us in education, in health, and even respecting our communities that we would have too. Yoruba town, Swahili town. Chinese got Chinatown. Japanese got Japantown. Latinx got most of the mission. Though they've had their challenges. Italians got Little Italy, North Beach. And the white folks got most of the financial district. So. At 82, I say again. This city and this nation. Don't lack. Black people. If they did, they would respect us. If they did, they will work with us, not at us, not around us, over, but with us in order to create a community in which there would truly be life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's a shame that on Petraria Hill, they even on this point, Bam, 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 every week. Practically every night, some blocks. That violence. And the national experts have said again and again, we should consider violence as a public health issue. But there's been no alarm. But I've seen other groups get a quick response and get money too. And I share it with the, our attorney general mm. that I would hope that he would not have any more public meetings to talk about hate crimes without including everybody. It's all right for him to meet one-on-one -on -one with this acting group and that group. But when these, these big public announcements and pronouncements are being made, it ought to always include black folks being victims of hate too. Why? Because the data, the facts, the, the analysis already revealed it. And he has stated it himself that black folks in the state of California are at the top of the list when it comes to hate crimes. So we're at the top of the list. If we are the patient who is really at the point of death, 
give us that kind of emergency service that we deserve. That's all we're saying. We've got to stop doing business as usual and act like it is a crisis and is not normalcy for us to be living in these horrible conditions in San Francisco. But you know what? I ain't here. Benjamin Elijah Mays said, who was the mentor of Martin Luther King, his intellectual and spiritual mentor, in 1967, when he gave the last charge to those young men who were graduating from Morehouse, he said, and I quote him, he said, our problem in the future will not come from the rabid segregationists of the South, such as Ross Barnett of Mississippi, Faubus of, of, of Arkansas, George Wallace of Alabama, Lester Maddox of Georgia. He said, our problem will come from most of the so-called, most now, I underscore that, progressive liberal whites who will wine and dine you in the swankers of hotels, sip tea with you, but will refuse to share economic and political power with you. Now that obtains for most of San Francisco. There has not been a fair sharing of economic and political power. Sure, we have a black mayor. Sure, we had Willa Brown, but that did not translate into the body politic delivering and the policymakers doing what they should have done to have oversight to make sure that there would be fairness, parity, and equality. I know I said a whole lot long-winded black Baptist preachers, but I had said it's time that we stop this. It's insane. It's brutal. And it is an assault on our humanity, what's been going on that I witnessed in the last 48 years in this town. Thank you, Reverend Brown. I'll give, I'll give you an opportunity to respond before I call on the next member. I, I, I appreciate the, you know, the wisdom that you bring, Reverend Brown. And, and we will work with, I know that you have met with Dr. Colfax um, and we will continue to ensure that we work um, in partnership. Thank you. Uh, I want to go to member Taylor, since we haven't heard from him on this, I'll admit, and I'll come back to you, member Carter. Thank you. Uh, just real quickly, um, in the city, you know, outside of the Human Rights Commission, um, there isn't a whole lot of political will to support reparations, and there hasn't been any since we started out. Um, and we've had the same kind of reports since the first meetings we had, where we basically said to other representatives, of the different offices, what has been said here so far. It's, it's very similar of, of an of a, a, a itemization of things that are being done, but Black people can't feel it, and they don't know it because they can't feel it in the way Daniel said. I'm not from here. These people are. So they know this neighborhood in their DNA. And I imagine if you interviewed each of them individually, they would tell you, even though member um uh let's just about to lose your name uh, uh member Irving um you know enumerated some of those really important 
successes, um, you know, if 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 you know if the idea of reparations is defunded or not funded in the city, um, then there's really no point of all of this. It, it seems to me that the same way everybody went behind, got behind diversity, equity, inclusion around after George Floyd, it was a mandate. It was a mandate from the mayor all the way down to every commission, every office in the city, and everybody had to come up with a DEI plan like you mentioned. And yet there has not been one mm. that's had a reparations commission, committee. Not one of the commissions outside of um, human rights has had anything on reparations. There's been zero will. I go down to the ferry and I watch people eat and hang out and wine and dine. And I'm on the committee and I'm saying, these people in San Francisco ain't thinking about black people and reparations. And that's how I feel. It's like, you know, um, a lot of people just... Um, there's no political will. And, and in New York City, there's a black mayor. They prioritize migrant workers over the black reparations movement in New York State. There's a state, in other words, California and New York are the only two st states with reparations plans. The mayor of New York, a black man, I went to school with his brother, Eric Adams. Um, then there is in Chicago, a new black mayor. Black folk are organized for reparations. They were doing reparations when we were doing reparations in 2006 with the slavery disclosure ordinance in Chicago. And there's no political will in Chicago behind the black community, but there's fierce money being given to migrants. And I'm not against migrants, so I hope you don't hear any neg negative comment in my mind. But in, now in San Francisco, it doesn't really matter that we have black people in power if there's no political will in the state. Or, or in the community, and there's no, in other words, Bank of America has admitted in the slavery disclosure ordinance that it acquired 56 companies that had connections to slavery directly or indirectly. Bank of America hasn't done nothing toward reparations, and it knows it's, in, it's, guilt, it's, it's implicit in a lot of what, what has gone down, and other companies as well. So it, it seems to me that you know, um, there's no political will behind the black community where there are other minority or other other groups. If we, you know, if it was the black LGBTQ, people might get behind us. But as Black America or as Black San Francisco, we have no like Elijah Muhammad and John Henry Clark said, we have no friends. We have very few allies. You know, we've had a a a a, a, a peppering of people from different communities come in and express support like the sister did tonight from the Jewish Black Alliance. And we love and appreciate that. But in terms of the, the city, the only response the city has really given is after the January 15th newspaper article hit and they heard 5 million was to basically say, hell no. And so it's almost, and I, I commend you for being here. I, you know, I, you should curse somebody out in the morning for putting you up, you here <laughs> under this hot seat when somebody else should be here um, getting this because, you, you know, if you had the power to do it, I'm sure you would wave your hand and fix these problems right now, but you don't. But there are people in this city who fix it for Japantown. They fix it for North Beach. They fix it for Chinatown. They fix it for everybody but us. And it's, and it's so deep because what this reparations effort has showed me is that there are a lot of people whose hearts, I asked in a couple of speeches and got myself in trouble by asking this, how can you be a white person in America today and still believe the same thing about reparations that your great, great, great grandfather did and you know he was racist? Huh? 
But most of white America is where most of racist white America has always been. And that's the sickness of this moment. And that's the shame. We did not lose this battle. We exposed the shame of this city, its ongoing rejection and, 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 and marginalization of the black community. It's not like we were disorganized. We organized, the state committee organized. We put together 2,000 pages of documentation. And once people heard that there was going to be no funding of the, of the, of the, of the, of the reparations committee, it was almost like reparations died. And that's why I'm heartened by Director Davis's comments earlier that we're going to press on anyway, because that's the mentality we have to have. We can, we've always been told no. With Black America, it's always no first. No to abolition. No to the end of Jim Crow. No to the end of Reconstruction. Right. I mean, no, you know, I'm mean, well, they want to hurt my angry construction on and on lynching. No. Right. A lynching federal bill. We just got one last year after all these decades. Mm. No, 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 no. Being black means no. And all San Francisco is doing again is saying no to us one more time. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you, sir. No on reparations. No on affirmative action. No on Prop 13. So you want to know why your sons are sagging? And not learning? You, you told them no in Prop 13 in 78 and 2020, 2020. Yeah. You didn't say this just 50 years ago. You said it two years ago in California. No to 13. That would help fund our schools. No to welfare, right? Even though we know who benefits from that first. No to affirmative action. There would not be a WNBA or a white woman doing most things that we see them doing in society without affirmative action. There are no professional women in America without affirmative action. Title IX and Title VII. So it just seems to me that there's just simply no political will behind black people the way it's so easy to get political will behind every other group right in front of our faces. Now I'm stopped. I'm stopped now. <laughs> Thank you. Member Carter. Dr. Baba, you are the deputy director, so you should be here. You should be here and getting the heat. And you and you do have the power to make the changes. And I'm curious to know, did you actually read our rep our recommendations? And so I challenge you in Department of Public Health, um, before we reconvene, to come to us um, either here again or by email, whatever fits best, but to let us know which recommendations DPH is actually adopting. That's all. Thank you. I just have just a couple of questions and thank you for your time this evening. One on, I guess a slide two that speaks to the $80 million in contracts for the black led organizations at a top line level. Can you speak to what those services are and, and how they're benefiting community? Sure. Um, so behavioral health um, has probably most of these um, and a lot of them do go. There are specific ones that are um, aimed at um, black African-Americans. Uh, so there is a mental health initiative um, as well as a substance use, as I mentioned, the opioids. Um, but a lot of them also um, go towards HIV services um, led by black African-Americans and maternal child health. I discussed a few different places. I, I don't have like the exact list, but we can definitely provide that. Okay. If you would, please, you can send that to um, the HRC office. That'll be fantastic. Um, and then lastly, 
on your racial equity action plan, mm -hmm. it speaks to, as a commitment, the elimination of the racial disparities. What level of racial disparities are you faced with that you're trying to eliminate? So um, specifically, we know that there are um, disparities in, um, like I said, the clinical side. Mm -hmm. So our physicians, our behavioral health clinicians, but also in the managerial and leadership positions um, that um, we are looking at, how, how can we ensure that we have um, a much wider um, diversity in, in, within the department? And again, also mirroring the patients and clients we serve so that the the clinician, the clinical population as well as the leadership population would match those. Do you happen to know off the top of your head what percentages of folks you do have versus what what the gap is? Um, so I can say for um, in DPH, there's 12% of uh, DPH staff are Black African American. I would need to know. I I don't have the data on clinical versus non-clinical side, so we would have to do that. We do have it by um, breakdown in terms of age, and one of the things is we have a high percentage of younger age, so 20 to 25 that have um, entered the department, um, and so really looking on ensuring that we are retaining and promoting that group as they age through the system. Great, thank you. So if you could get those that data and and again send it to the HRC staff on our behalf. That would be fantastic. Okay. Um, I think that is all from members. Thank you all very much. Thank you so much for your time uh, and your report tonight. And we look forward to the follow-up. We appreciate it. With that, we will close this item. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, we're moving on to item number five. That is the chair's report. This is a discussion item. It's a presentation by Eric McDonald, chair of the African-American Reparations Advisory Committee, affiliated with the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. Uh, there will be public comment and committee comment on this item. Thank you. I'll be brief. Um, just a couple of things. Um, one has, has already been noted by Director Davis. Um, Supervisor Walton is working on processing, for lack of a better term, um, a formal apology right now, um, at least as he understands it at this point, it is slated to um, work through committee and then come to um, the full um, in February to do it during Black History Month. So more to come on that as that progresses. Secondly, um, not because of, but um, in light of the fact that we are sunsetting next month, lots of some efforts, I shouldn't say lots, sorry, um, effort has been underway to secure some initial funding from both um, San Francisco Foundation and the California Black Freedom Fund to support some, some ongoing community engagement. And, and right now that funding will flow through SF Black Wall Street. Um, and so more to come on that. Hopefully I can give you more detail once there's a level of commitment to some of the specifics around it in our January meeting before again, we we sunset, but more to come on that. Related to that, do want to put some effort into, again, determining how an independent body um, can be organized and brought together. And then coupled with that, um, creating a fund through which additional fundraising can happen, both from public and private um, entities. 
um, to support ongoing work. Um, two last other things. Um, again, as we've talked about before, um, will be really important. So it's just going to hear me echoing this over and over that even as we sunset, there is still both need, certainly more opportunity than than should be required, but for the advocacy that continues to hold the city uh, accountable. It's particularly important that we continue to have not only committee members, but community being a part of that voice because it's going to be necessary. Um, and I would just highlight the fact that we have an election year coming up. Um, and it is an opportunity to leverage um, that that opportunity. I mean, I think it important is just one person's point of view that anybody running for public office in San Francisco, part of the litmus test ought to be, where do you stand on reparations? Um, and, and that that be consistently held across every public office um, here in in the city as a, as a part of the criteria for determining um, support. And then lastly, just as an FYI, if you did not see it, um, members of the California task force, um, as you know, they sunset back in June. Members of the task force, um, along with a couple of other statewide entities, advocacy orgs, have created what is called the Alliance for Reparations, Reconciliation, and Truth created for the purposes of continued advocacy, community education, and mobilization of community. And, and, and I see at least a connection between our work, their work, and the work that is happening across the state in, in, in local communities, Berkeley, et cetera, that there is opportunity to, to stay connected to as we continue to mobilize and continue to push to shift the narrative that begins to recognize us, recognize our value, um, and then make the appropriate efforts and actions around repair. So more to come on that, but, but wanted you to know that just in case you did not. And so with that, that concludes my report. Let's go to public comment, um, and then we'll go to any questions from community, from committee, excuse me. Public comment is two minutes on this item. Please approach the podium. And I'm going to apologize for being a little naive, but how many of these meetings has the mayor actually come to? I And I know you can't answer that question for me, but it's kind of glaringly obvious that for all of the tremendous effort that has gone into this and for all of the voices here who speak to power, it is unimaginable to me. I mean, really folks, unimaginable. I've been to two and this is almost the last one and she's not here. So, you know, given her public appearances that are almost all scripted, never mentioning this particular body at all, that is shameful to me. She was just in our building yesterday at a dinner of maybe 35 people celebrating our seven year anniversary. 
Now, I know that it would be very awkward to approach her with a political question like that at a dinner, but she arranges those kinds of appearances intentionally. That is shameful to me. And it truly hurts my heart to see that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna end it there. I know I only get two minutes, but I'm gonna come to the last meeting and I am almost certain she will also not be at that one. She won't get my vote. You cannot, when you cannot even symbolically say, symbolically, that you support this, Jeez, that is just you're, truly you're a lack of courage. Fired, sir. Are there any other members of the public who would like to participate in public comment at this time? I would like to say something, but You know, y'all can hear me without this microphone. You know, I just, hi, I'm Miss Billy Cooper, and I am a proud African-American resident of San Francisco for, for over 40 years, going on 45 years. And, you know, we have all these meetings, and y'all talk amongst yourselves, and yada, 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 and y'all just grilled that lady to the depths of hell, and she don't really make any of those decisions y'all were talking about, and Grant Kofax, that's another Oprah Winfrey show right there, but you know, when are we going to see something, and this gentleman right here, what you were saying is spot on, and you were saying was spot on, and, and Reverend Amos, I've known you for years, I used to come to your church, you're always spot on, but when are we going to stop all this rhetoric talking and bullshit and get to the facts? When are we going to produce hard evidence to make these, as y'all said, these white people stand on their stand, stand up and um, commit to apologies. They're not going to apologize to us. They're not going to apologize to us. I remember my father and mother from Louisiana telling me they would just drag black people out of businesses and hang them. And nobody ever apologized for that. And this this young gentleman right here said about the bill uh, last year or something that they finally acknowledged black people still getting hung as, as we stand in this room, if I'm not mistaken, or some kind of bill like that. It's horrible. It's horrific. It's horrific. You know, we're not going to get no apologies from nobody. And and the whole the whole board knows that oh, it's horrible. It's it's tired. And we have to talk about marginalized and poor people. We have to cuz I'm one of them. You know, uh, uh we need more Low-income housing. Poor people can't afford affordable housing. Yeah. We need low-income housing. I know I got to shut up, but, you know, what I'm saying has a whole lot of truth behind it because I'm out there in the streets. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. We have to we have to move forward right now. Thank you. 
Are there any other members of the public who would like to comment on this item? And just to be clear, as you're coming, we welcome you to come, but this is public testimony on the item of my report. So it's not, oh, the, it's not the global reparations. Topic. Right. right. So, that comes up a little later in general public comment. So I couldn't talk about like my history of my family being here. Correct. Correct. That's under number. Okay. Item seven. number. All right. We're almost put, there. Almost there. Item number seven. Thank you. Okay. Seeing no more public comment on this item. Um, members, questions, comments. Uh, let's go to member Barry. Yeah, thank you, Chair, for your report. Um, yes, I'm Member Barry, a poor person in San Francisco. And I would like to say that um, you mentioned elections and how we need to uh, pressure people running for office to say that they support reparations. And unfortunately, everyone on the Board of Supervisors did say they support reparations unanimously, but their actions have showed different. So getting folks to just say that they support reparations um, to feel good, but are, uh, I'm, I'm really concerned about action at this point. Also, um, by me having access to political consultants, I've been hearing a lot lately, it's best not to say you're for reparations because the majority of San Francisco might not vote for you if you care about black people. Mm. So my final comment on this is that I'm sad. I'm very sad that the measly little $2 million is delayed or as of today cut to even open our office and that that's a political probably move. And I also wanna apologize to the black San Franciscans that have so much hope and at this point are being reharmed by no action being taken after all this work we've done and that um i personally feared that this would be a nothing burger of a body and i'm happy to hear HBCU might be a vision that's being worked on. But as far as Ray Ray and them, to, uh, I know Pastor Brown likes to say, what about Ray Ray and them? You know, as far as our brothers and sisters that ain't even been up in here, don't even know what's going on up in here and are the most harmed by this city, that they will see nothing happen maybe in their lifetime um, I apologize, and I wish that it was politically um, a ladder climber move to be for Black people, and that's all. Thank you. Member Taylor. And just real quickly, um, and this is not to put Chair McDonald and Vice Chair uh, Hollins on the spot, but I would like to request that we write a letter directly to the mayor responding to her uh, decision um, and asking her um, 
if it's foreclosed that you know the budget is done for this year uh, and Dr. Director Davis knows how this works. Um, is there another way uh, for us to get ear fund, earmark funding or, or discretionary funding of some kind? But I just don't think we should accept no without responding as a organ as a committee. We have we owe her an answer, and I know you you're working hard already. Mm -hmm. I know director, I mean uh, Vice President, uh, Vice Chair Hollins is working all over the place, as many other members of the committee are, and don't want to add the burden. But I think before we sunset, we owe Mayor Bree a, a letter of of um, of request to figure out some other way. Thank you. Director just, Davis. I just want to share again, I mentioned this earlier, but just a point of clarity. And I just want um, to clarify, just so folks are prepared as you do this. Um, yes, the $2 million was cut, but that we are leveraging far more than $2 million to advance the recommendations that have been put forth. So just to give context for the statements that the mayor has said, there will be more than $2 million to support the Heritage Center. There will be more than, um, you know, we're already talking about the it's not about for the $250,000 that I'm hoping that we put out in terms of cash payments this year, this fiscal year, which is ends June 30th. It's not about having access to the money. It's about the fact that it would take through the, the legal process. I'm hoping that in six months that the city attorney's office will have the process by which we can do that where it won't be contested. Right. So I, I just want to be clear that although the, the money for the Office of Reparations has um, rep reparations proper is gone. The money to actually move forward these things, as I said, with um, regards to the HBCUs, we already have probably 10 plus um, HBCU representatives that are asking to be in space that we will have to help cover the cost. There are the internships that we'll do this summer. So there are costs that will be associated with this work that will far exceed the money that was there. So I just want you to have that clarity when you go to ask for, for that, because the response that she's given is that, or at least her office has given, is that we are continuing to move forward this work with other pots of money. So I just wanted to clarify that. Thank you, Director Davis. Uh, Reverend Brown. Mr. Chairman, members of the task force, ladies and gentlemen, I must say this. The facts reveal that the Jewish community has supported our quest for reparations. The Japanese community has supported us. And Ms. Barry and I got the Democratic Central Committee to support us. There may be others. But truth demands that I say It is hurting. It's disconcerting that in 1882, 1882, and you can Google this, that brother from Maryland, Frederick Douglass, stood up 
and fought. The Chinese Exclusion Act that this nation perpetrated against the Chinese. And the record reveals that not one <laughs> community based uh, activist significant group from the Chinese community has endorsed reparations. If, if they have, I stand corrected. I repeat again, if they have, I stand corrected. Need I say more? Thank you, Reverend. Uh -oh. Thank you, Reverend Brown. Thank you, members. All right, we will close item number five. Call the next item, please. Item number six is a report back from the National Symposium for State and Local Reparations. This is a discussion item. It will be a presentation by Joel Stewart, Manager, Economics Rights Division, Zachary Manuel, Policy, Economics Rights Division, Kathy Mulkey-Meyer, Secretary, African-American Reparations Advisory Committee. Uh, we all work for the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. There will be public comment and committee comment on this item. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask our colleague, John McKnight, if he can please bring up the slideshow. Great. Um, so thanks, everybody. Thank you um, to the chair, the committee, uh, members of the public, and everyone joining us tonight. Um, we wanted to report back on um, a symposium that the three of us attended. Um, John, could you go to the next slide, please? So um, we went to the National Symposium for State and Local Reparations. Here's, um, we're gonna go quickly, but I just want to uh, briefly tell you, give you an overview of what we're gonna talk about. I'll um, you know, tell you a little bit about the symposium itself. We'll talk about the growing momentum for reparations, how arts is used in reparations, and then each of us will talk about the breakout sessions we attended at the conference. Next slide, please. So uh, this symposium was hosted by partners who've uh, spoken to the committee in the past. Uh, you may remember Robin Rue Simmons from First Repair, which is based in Oakland, uh, sorry, in Evanston outside of Chicago, which was the first municipality to have a reparations program, and by NARC um, with uh, Dr. Ron Daniels, who joined us in the beginning of the um in the near the inception of this committee almost two years ago. It was November 30th uh, through December 2nd in Evanston, and it was a convening of practitioners, activists, philanthropists, elected officials, academics, all people from different um, walks of life working on state and local reparations initiatives in various capacities across the country. Next slide, please. Um, and yeah, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge the impact of the work that all of you, all of us have done over the past two years here in San Francisco, because it was really tangible at the symposium that the work is really highly regarded and well respected by people. Um, you know, we took a we took a few copies, we took dozens of copies of the full report to share. 
And I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but there was overwhelming demand from people all around the country who are looking to San Francisco as a model. So that I just wanted to elevate that because, you know, this work, it's been two years and sometimes we don't get a chance to step back and acknowledge the impact that it's having, but it's been a significant impact. Um, over 200 people from state and local reparations and initiatives from across the country were in attendance. And um, yeah, they've, um, another cool thing is that first repair and narc have adopted the um arax ancestral acknowledgement um to use in their own meetings and so you know this is something that seems like it, it, you know it, it's not a huge thing but it is a big deal because word travels fast and you know as these things get adopted across the country it is really making an impact next slide please and this is kind of hard to see. I'm sorry about that. We'll uh, email something out. But, you know, this work can be really... Uh, can feel lonely and isolating sometimes, but there's so many people working on reparations across the spectrum. As I mentioned, um, we have everybody from uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones who joined us here in San Francisco um, last month or two months ago um, to Georgetown University, as um, Professor Taylor mentioned, all these institutional actors, researchers, and different things across the country that are happening uh, that are converging on this moment right now. And um, we're part of that legacy. And so this is just a representation of some people from um, courtesy of Liberation Ventures, which is a philanthropic um, organization that deals with reparations. Next. Uh, something that stood out to us um, at the conference was a session about arts and reparations. Um, and there's an artist based in, on the South side of Chicago named uh, Tanika Johnson, who has, a, um, who has several initiatives. One is called the Folded Map Project, where she matches people up from the North and South sides of Chicago with um, you know, addresses that uh, roughly reflect each other and talk about the differences in those communities. You know, the, um, she played a video where uh, people are talking about the price of their homes. And one woman from the North side is talking about how her home was $400 thousand dollars and another woman from the south side the black woman in the um, video was talking about how her home was you know significantly like maybe five figures like under a hundred thousand dollars and um so it was like illustrating the stark um anyway it, all the stark um disparities in chicago but then she also talked about an initiative um where she has where she places um identifying plaques outside of um outside of different homes in the south side that identify the um the discrimination that led to the home being the way that it is now we can go to the next slide So that's um, so a little a few takeaways from her session, um, which is about redefining arts role in repairing historic racism, was that creative placemaking initiatives um, can engage people around the tangible income uh, impacts of structural racism. That's what this uh, project in equity for sale is all about. And then um, she also had some instructive um, words of wisdom about leveraging public grant opportunities and working with community partners to respond to real community needs needs. And there was an initiative called Unblocked Inglewood, where basically um, Tanika uh, like 
partnered with uh, the Chicago Bungalow Association to apply for a City of Chicago RFP, which was a grant, uh, an arts grant to um, that was talking about beautification, you know, thing, murals, th things that make you think about murals and um, superficial beautification. But her thing was like, before we can do the superficial um, beautification, we need to have some sort of infrastructure in place so that people can um, realize the actual economic uh, opportunities that lie within their homes. So she was able to partner with this organization um, to get an arts grant to transform a block that had 22 vacant lots um, and, and get um, homeowners the provides residents with funds for home repairs and uh, technical assistance. So going above and beyond this traditional concept and um, being really smart and savvy about how to apply for uh, public funds, um, it, it was really an interesting session. And so next slide, please. We're going to talk about the breakout sessions that we attended. And so I will pass it to um, Zach to talk about the legal pathways to restorative justice. Okay, testing, testing, thank you. Thank you very much, Joel. Um, next slide, please. Thank you, John. Um, so at the conference, I had the ability to speak with and converse with Nicholas Cummings, who's a lawyer and corporation counsel for the city of Evanston, working on reparations in that space. And in his seminar, he presented a six-step toolkit on how local reparations programs can operate. And in this section, I'll just be providing an overview on what those steps are. Um, next slide, please. So the steps include defining reparations, understanding why local reparations are necessary, how to develop an, a local reparations program, commissioning a study, and creating a reparations program, and then lastly, drafting legislation. Next slide, please. Um, I want to take time to commend this body for doing the work over the past two years to complete one, two, and four of these steps. And as such, I'll be speaking on those remaining, which is three, five, and six, six which have been addressed at NSF at various levels. Next slide, please. So on step three on developing and implementing a local reparations program, two key factors were highlighted. The first was building political will, which has been talked about tonight. Thank you, um, James. We talked about identifying effective legislators that are trusted in the community, but on top of that, having high levels of community engagement in what harm and repair look like to be able to continue to develop that inside-outside approach and push for political capital in that sense. Um, an example would be Evanston, where we have Robin Ruth Simmons, who's the former Fifth Ward Council member, who is the champion of reparations in that space, and then the Honorable Lionel Jean-Baptiste, a former Second Ward Council member, who is also integral in the reparations work on that space. The second would be identifying a funding source, which is locating and establishing a funding source that can fuel the work for reparations. And an example of this, again, is Illinois. What they did was they used an adult use cannabis tax from 2020 that is actively funding the housing grants and reparations in Evanston today. On step five, which is creating a reparations program. This is based on what the historic municipality harm has looked like, which is rooted in data. And then what does reparations look like as a remedy? So in order to achieve this, two standards must be met, which is the first on meeting governmental interest. Uh, the remedy of past discrimination is already a compelling governmental interest, which is an easy bar to pass. But a harder one would be that the solution must be narrowly tailored and actively address the harm. So bringing up reparations in Evanston once again, their original 
original sin that they identified was housing discrimination that took place between 1909 to mid 20th century. And because of that, the reparations that they gave was housing grants uh, that went towards home repairs, mortgages, paying off housing debt, uh, more everything like that. So being able to have something that's narrowly tailored and solution to meet the harm is incredibly important in this step. Um, and then on step six, which is drafting legislation, the uh, Nicholas highlighted the difference between resolutions, ordinances, and statutes. Now, statutes are laws enacted by legislatures at either the federal level or the state level. So California legislature would be the, the enforcing body in this, which would be more so the work towards the state task force. And this actually applies towards the entire state. Ordinances are passed on a local level by municipal governments like a city council or county board of commissioners, and this applies to local jurisdictions. Resolutions are generally less permanent than ordinances and are used with matters that are special or temporary in nature, such as expression of opinion. And then developing an administrative body to evaluate claims to work through understanding the scope and eligibility is also a key factor. We're doing that within San Francisco within our current approach of leveraging current uh, city agencies as well as programs to be able to achieve reparations. And then the final point I want to raise is that there is no one size fits all for reparations as municipalities are unique in the ways that anti-Black racism and discrimination that was perpetuated in the community. The form of reparations must also meet that harm accordingly, which looks like different solutions. And I'll pass it over to my colleague, Kat. Thank you, Zach. Um, John, uh so I attended the breakout session working with community foundations to establishing reparations funds. And can you move to the next slide, please? Thank you. Um, so it was titled From Philanthropy to Ubuntu to Repair, and this session was led by the Evanston Community Foundation. Um, they really centered this I, their idea on the community of repair equals a community of healing. The foundation should be part of a community of repair and remember the power of the collective versus leveraging power over the collective. Um, community found, can you go to the next slide, please? Thanks. So there were four pillars that they really focused on. Um, first of all, we'll talk about the community foundations, um, their grant-making charities. I think we're all pretty familiar within this group, but maybe members of the public aren't. There are grant-making charities designated to improve the lives of people within a local geographic area, serving through the power of endowment. There are different types of endowments that you can look at with designated funds, field of interest funds, scholarship funds, and restricted funds. Um, there is, they also focused on the power of donor intent, and they really were very specific in talking about this. Um, donor intent provides coverage under uh, legal scrutiny, um, and they actually were looking at strategies that some hard right um, activists were using to block specific things in court, and they were allowed to use certain funds because of the donor intent. Um, they were looking specifically at Bloom Foundation. Um, and they were like, well, you know, we can also use these kinds of strategies um, specifically. And we already know they passed the legal muster. 
and then um, provide and also working within community foundations, it provides a organizational structure. They usually have a board members and staff to help um, move the move your work forward. So the four pillars that they recommend are um, folks should lead minimally. Black-led or foundation does not mean Black-centered foundation. Um, trusted philanthropy, philanthropy principles like first repair hold that role in Evanston. Um, to elevate voices and community members leading the work to prioritize the repair of barriers to equity and social justice. Three, you should identify key areas for philanthropic leadership in reparations work, helping to build a better understanding of the repair work with the general public. Faith-based organizations did provide initial funding to, um, to uh, first repair. And that in that way, they were the trusted, they were the trusted funders to start this work off. Um, and they were also centered in community. Next, follow. There needs to be more space to follow than to lead. You need to invest in repair. Equity and repair are not the same thing. Evanston focuses their their cash their repair and awards around redlining. And each local uh, municipality needs to work within their community to decide what are their priorities are that they need to meet. Um, staging investments in repair, buffering young people now will from further harm while providing reparations at the same time. Um, they looked a lot at how they worked in education to be able to support young people now and also provide reparations to families. Um, listen first, do what you're asked without to do without translation. So if you're working with community and they ask you to do something, you do what they request, not what you think they want. And then finally, they just told folks that they need to get out of the way sometimes. Most of the time, anyone stepping into local reparations needs to get out of the way and listen to what the community actually wants. Uh, black meat leaders must always have space to completely take the wheel. And always remember the philanthropic sector is part of and operates within a system of oppression. So that's why um, they were very specific on working with foundations that specifically are focused on reparations, not just globally focused on a bunch of different topics and are including reparations as part of that. And then they ask, can you sacrifice, provide resources, investment and in infrastructure and seed control of that investment to Black-led organizations and they will take the leadership and control. And um, are there any, can you move the slide forward, John? And so I'll pass it on to Joelle. Thank you. 
Okay, so um, I'll go through this quickly. The last, um, the last breakout session was the role of community engagement in advancing reparations. And uh, Vanessa Hill Hall Harper, who is on the city council in Tulsa, um, and Christy Williams, who is an educator in the community, led this session. Next slide, please. So they talked about two uh, programs that they are um, that are underway in Tulsa, Oklahoma, called Beyond Apology and Black History Saturdays. Um, Beyond Apology came um, from a legislation in the city that was uh, basically an uh, basically an apology and um, for the Tulsa for the um, sorry the Tulsa race um, what were they the Tulsa race um, massacre. I keep wanting to say race riot, but they um, said that it is called the race massacre now. So sorry about that. Um, but the so uh, beyond apology is a series of community conversations rooted in education on rep what repair and uh, reparation in Tulsa, Oklahoma should look like. And then Black History Saturdays was a program that was really innovative that engages Tulsans of all ages, and it's really a, a family focused effort to. Um, um, that's designed for the entire family. So it's an intentional educational learning experience that creates conversations at the dinner table. And it has a really comprehensive curriculum that incorporates diverse subject matter like archaeology, art, science, and history, all centered around um, that educating Black families and um, really focusing on that um, education for development, community development and empowerment as a key to moving reparations forward in community spaces. Next slide. And um, basically, they talked about the different the structure that they have for their community engagement. So I won't go through. Well, I'll just mention each one. So um, the first one was to invite people to read over the um, the Tulsa City Council resolution and discuss what the uh, council is even capable of providing so that um, it really defining the government's role in the process. Also, they um you know, they had a station where people could understand the impacts of the Tulsa race massacre and systemic racism by engaging them with, um, there's like this data that that um, Tulsa has, which is called the Tulsa Equality Indicators. And um, it puts numbers to the, it, you know, they talk about um, how to read data and um, how to interpret that and how to um, put contextualize it within the history of the city. They also um, studied the past reports because like San Francisco, there are many reports documenting the harms of Black Tulsans. And um, so they read those with each other and discuss them and um, talk about what's already been done to look forward to what can be done. And finally, they always have a guest expert to talk about reparations who's engaged in reparations work across the country um, and people give their feedback. And it sounded like a really amazing program that um, is centered or, you know, it, it has, they're not, Tulsa was asking us how to, um, how to move forward with reparations like San Francisco has. And we're also looking to them as, you know, they did some great work too. So it was just great to be in that space. And um, we can go to the next slide, which is a great picture that, um, that Zach took of all of us. Um, and thank you. It was a privilege to be able to attend. Thank you for um, your time.
Excellent. Thank you for the report back. Appreciate your attendance and the representation of the work here in the city. Uh, okay, let's go to public comment on this item. Are there any members of the public who would like to comment on specifically on this report back from the National Symposium for State and Local Reparations? Seeing none, public comment then is closed. Members, any questions or comments? Member Barry. Yes, I would just like to say, as far as political will that was discussed in the slide and support to the community, the elephant in the room for me is a conflict of interest. We have a department that during our first hearing with the Board of Supervisors did a mass outreach for Dream Keepers. And don't get me wrong, Dream Keepers has been, I've seen a lot of good work in Dream Keepers, a lot of good work. And just recently um, got the breakdown on the process of home ownership and how Section 8 people could really be helped to get a home. And, and it's a lot of good things in Dream Keepers. So, so I'm not knocking Dream Keepers because I think it gets pitted against reparations. However, comma, the efforts to get the community involved in dream keepers just doesn't seem to be the same as reparations the political will the outreach to the community letting them know when our meetings are um there's some people that got dream keeper money that said they couldn't speak on reparations you know and, and it's just like how do we come together that we should have both? You know, how, how do we, with the department that runs one program and has to some way leverage all these things for reparations. And, and it's not a, it's not a dig at the system because I wouldn't want reparations in any other department than the human rights commission. But where was the, when we had the hearing that was supposed to be for reparations only, where was all the mass outreach at? Why didn't that happen? And this this report of what y'all just gave to us spoke on that because we, we need people power in this. And, and I think we failed in that. You know, thank you, Brother Freddie. You know, at Glide, I know you worked really hard. I mean, member um, Martin. You worked really hard at outreach in in your um, your uh, constituency, but nice report. But it's like I feel like we failed the people. And I'm sorry. I'm just like really sad about it. I'm really sad. You said Everson's looking at what we did. What did we do? That's all. Thank you. Through the chair. Hold on one second, Reverend Brown. Yes, please. Um, so I'm trying to figure out how to respond or how to say this. And I will say, because I've said it in other meetings privately, I've said it in these spaces before. Um, and you all can speak up or not speak up. I was told point blank to not do reparations work when we were doing the joint hearing. I was told to stay. I stopped coming to these meetings. I spoke to many of you. I felt disrespected. I felt that I was told not to do a lot of things. I was told to be quiet. 
And so I did outreach and I worked where folks wanted me to work. And I fell all the way back because this committee and members of this committee told me I was overstepping. They told me they did not want my help. I have had very emotional meetings with many folks. I have shared in this space and I have shared privately with folks who actually came and asked me why I fell back. So the distinction was not at my own choice. It was not a political issue. It was a very clearly, I was told I was doing too much. Every time I tried to speak up in these meetings, I don't know if folks realized I stopped coming to the meetings. I did not stop start coming back to them until Brittany went out on maternity leave. So I have said that um, I am also human. I've been in these meetings. I've said that I raised my son here. Yes, I've only been here 30 years. I'm not from San Francisco, but my son was raised here. I'm a black woman with a black son in this city. And I felt like when I tried to speak both as the director and as a resident of this town, I was shut down. I had many nights of crying. I had moments in the meetings where we were told when, because a lot of the mobilization came from Mega Black, we were told not to have Mega Black be a part of it. It was asked to make those distinctions. And I was trying to be respectful of this committee. So when I was asked to back off, I backed off. Hold on. Thank you, Director Davis. Um, and just as a kind of underscoring of that, Many of the efforts that took place, especially early on and when we were leading up to the first hearing, um, because of some of the underlying, I'll call it tension, um, between DKI and um, uh, and the reparations work, those lines of distinction were made pretty clear. Um, and I think that's where why we experienced um, what we did. Uh, Reverend Brown and then Member Irving. I hope that we will see. You can pat your head and rub your belly at the same time. Right. It takes two wings for a bird to fly and two wings for an airplane to stand there. And if we're going to bring redress, repair, and restoration. We got to reason with each other and respect each other. Each of us has done his or her bit. And this endeavor is not about any one particular person. And I feel that we should keep our eyes on the prize. And the prize is progress for the people. The people. In football, there are some balls that be fumbled. But always, if you're going to have a winning team, and you're going to make it to the great series, Somebody always retrieves the ball and makes a touchdown anyhow. And if there were any fumbles, 
We cannot get on the sideline or think about who fumbled what ball. But now's the time for us to retrieve that ball. Go on and make a touchdown. A young preacher once went to his first church and with great hopes and aspirations and dreams to succeed in that church, he decided that he would do a sociological study of that church and its community to determine what should be the priorities. And after he spent three months with his study, the only thing he came up with was that that church needed some chandeliers. And he went to his board meeting and very abruptly said, our first measure is to get these chandeliers and get them right away. The meeting ended on a sour note and the young man left the meeting downhearted, upset, and the next day he saw his chairman of that board downtown. He ran up to him and said, sir, I left the meeting really depressed, not feeling that I could make it in this church. He said, but tell me, why is it that they turned my proposal down? And the response was, well, young preacher, there are three reasons. There ain't nobody in that church who can spell chandelier. <coughs> number two, there ain't nobody there who can play that thing. And number three, we've been needing some lights for a hell of a long time. <laughs> and we better get to those lights. What's the point? When you talk about reparations, when you talk about trying to restore a people, there are many terms that are kicked around that mm -hmm. we don't stop to get clarity and understanding. As chairmen and members of the task force, I pray and hope that we get clarity and understanding, and that is we all want the same thing. And come at the end of this time together, we're still going to be focusing on where the real challenge is, where the real lights need to be turned on. And that's with the body politic of this city. Thank you, sir. Member Irving. I'll be quick. I just want to, I'm not in all spaces. I don't know. I stay away from most drama, but I don't want brother Zach to sit over here when I know how hard that brother worked around reparations and making sure folks knew what was happening. And I'm sure that's at the, you know, being a part of the HRC, but 
this brother worked really, really yeah. hard to inform this community to make sure that it wasn't just mega black. He was helping to draft. How do you draft a statement? How do you know what all the points of reparations are? And that was not a part of this committee, but the work um, within the HRC and the mega black. And I just I know that there may have been some things that happened, but I don't ever want um, us to feel like I don't I want you to know I saw you go hard in the paint. And I just appreciate the work that you did on behalf of the HRC, never given up, whether it was being pushed out or not. We were consistently informed. I was as a community member, but I'm also a part of different groups and maybe that's how I got it. But I was informed and I know that that came through the Human Rights Commission um, and with this brother taking the lead and being the voice of it. Maybe not like directing, but being the voice of it. Thank you, Member Landry. Yes, through the chair. So I just want to say, um, look, let's not get leery and well doing. First of all, this is God is going to get, you know, get into this. San Francisco, I've had an opportunity for a long time coming. And you all know here, we all educated to the history of San Francisco. That report that we put together along with the state. Hey, who could not? Or who could reject the work of the people? I just want to say this is bigger than all of us. It's bigger than the Human Rights Commission Department. It's bigger than the Reparations Task Force. It's bigger than us as individuals. Because at the end of the day, until San Francisco addresses past harms, San Francisco is in trouble with God. So let's not forget that is bigger than this. This is just a formality. Because at the end of the day, a hundred years from now, they will be talking about every moment we spent in crafting this plan. It's bigger than the mayor. It's bigger than President Biden. Mm -hmm. It's bigger than this world. Justice will come to black people mm -hmm. one way or another. Now, I don't want to see San Francisco continue to de decline. However, no justice, no peace. So instead of me shedding tears, because I feel the sadness that member Barrios is speaking, because it's always put us at odds with each other as black folks. At the end of the day, they give us limited resources. Then they put, then we create all these task force and bodies and the task force and bodies and the ideas go nowhere. That's not our fault. All we got to do now is just keep on keeping on. Yes. We will create another entity. And we will keep advocating for reparations, but we need to go outside of San Francisco and create that third party. Because just like the San Francisco Federal Credit Union, remember they sent us a letter and said that they was willing to put up money? That was a year and a half ago. So I don't want us to get leery and well-doing because we're doing the job of God here. And, and God sees all of the work. Whether it's Zach, whether it's, it's, it's Dr. Davis, Dr. Brown, whether it's the chair, those who's back home, God see the work. This is not in vain, y'all. And I just want to tell each and every one of you, thank you for your work. Thank you for, for dealing with this. Because many a times you could have easily got up and say, 
That's it. Just thank you. Let's keep working. Yeah. It's just beginning. Believe me. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Landry. Uh, Sorry, member Carter. I just want to say again, thank you. I don't think this work um, is cut out for ego. Um, this also isn't a kumbaya moment either. We got to get to work. We got stuff to do. And I don't want to be talking about this 100 years from now. I want our people to get what is old and for us to become a vile part of San Francisco like we deserve to be. Um, I'm appreciative of, of the actions that we are able to move forward with the COP holders, with the HBCU. I would like to see something move forward that stabilize the black middle-class community. And until we are able to do that, we will continuously to be in these predicaments. And I would like to see a courageous leader to stand up, black, white, whatever, that don't care about um, what people have to say and they're in, in, in getting reelected and, and all of the politics. And I'm tired of my people being used as political pawns in, in capitalism and politics in San Francisco. In San Francisco, after this convenes, you will no longer, um, depending on what action is taken in this, to be able to call yourself the progressive city because the world is watching. And it's not over, Member Barry. It's not over. So we got time to push some stuff forward. Um, when I first started this, I told people, don't clap for me. Don't clap until we get something done. And so let's get something done. And and then we can sing, we can praise, we can come by y'all later. Thank you. Just just before, um, Brother Taylor, um, just a reminder, we're on item six and item six is a report back from. So let's, if we could gear our comments that way. Um, just to come back to center so that we can stay on agenda. Thank you. I, I'm inspired by the, the visit and what you all learned and brought back. Um, I um, am really uh, happy that these young folk who are, you know, behind us are younger than us are on the front lines of this. So if we all fell out right now, they already then picked up the mantle and been on the front lines of it. So I think that's the key. I, you know, I would just uh, give Member Barry a a, a, a gentle um, comment of, of encouragement. And that is, I think we've inspired the world. We've inspired a lot of people all over this world. 14 countries in Africa and the West Indies. New York State. Hmm. Um, Evanston, Illinois, even though they got started earlier, they came out here and checked out what we're doing. Mm. Um, Providence, Rhode Island, mm. Los Angeles, California, Berkeley, California. We have we've we've made a major impact, and um, I don't think our labor is in vain, because uh, I think we've honored our ancestors. I, I think we've honored them. I know I've been involved in this the whole time and the whole time I've been thinking about my grandfather and trying to honor my grandfather. Um, and, and I know my children are watching me. I had three children and they're watching me and they're not following me. They don't care, but they're watching. And one day I hope, you know, when I'm dead and gone, they realize, you know, that I was busy fighting to the best of my ability for our people. And I think everybody in this committee can say that. 
if we all had the willpower, I mean, the, if we had the ability, reparations would be done, you know. But I, you know, I just I, I commend this whole process. I, there's nothing about this process that I regret um, or the effort that we put in. Um, and, uh, you know, Chair McDonald, you've done an amazing job of keeping us together when there were many moments where, you know, things were, were going crazy and helped us skelter at times. And you you kept us stable, you and Vice Chair Hollins. And um, I just think every person on this committee needs to understand that um, your, your name will forever be recorded as a part of this. And I think that that is important. 15 years from now, when you're walking down the street somewhere and you see something about reparations, you know that you've you've had an impact or, or some of the programs that we're trying to reach into um, or connect with are actually changing the lives of black people in San Francisco, where black San Francisco is saying things have really gotten better since they got together around reparations and, and the DKI. Hmm. You know, that's what I want. Like Reverend Brown said, everybody wants the same thing. And like, like, um, the rapper uh, from Brooklyn, um, uh, not Q-Tip, but his boy, he says, um, you know, uh, not Tali Kweli, the other one. Uh, he says, I want, my, I want my people to be free, to be free, to be free. I want black people to be free, to be free um, in one of his songs. Um, uh, Yasin Bey, Yasin Bey. He talks about that in one song. He says, I want black, I want my people to be free, to be free, to be free. I want black people to be free, to be free, to be free. And that's what I want. And I think that's what we all want. And I, and, um, and I think, you know, I know I'm not going to stop with this committee's efforts. I have intentions of what I'm going to do here in the city to put pressure and expose people who have been on the side doing nothing and saying nothing when they got blood on their hands. And and we, we're not done. You know, there are newspapers, there are media outlets, there are public forums. We have to keep mobilized as individuals around this issue. And I promise you, um, I intend to have a lot more to say about what has happened in reparations in, Sa in San Francisco and in California. Um, and we did not lose. And, you know, I think, again, the way Re Director Davis has indicated, we're having more of an impact on in issue areas than we realize. And those areas will be funded more so than what we, you know, we aim for. But again, we want black people to be free. And if that's going to help the foster kids, if that's going to help the elders, if that's going to help with the, the, the certificates, if that's going to help with the schools, if that's going to help with the jobs, if that's going to help with the violence prevention in the community, this reparations effort has healed so much. Um, you've seen names come down. You've seen Georgetown University, I didn't finish telling you, they created a whole research center and they're funding it for $25 million every year. And the families who were the descendants of the slaves of Georgetown, those 282 people, they are in charge, the descendants of who gets that $25 million every day, every year. Black people do at Georgetown. That's reparations. We, we have something to do with that, Sister Barry. They ain't doing this on their own. Everybody in this world has watched us. And when they, when Martin Luther King's birthday announced that $5 million, the whole world focused on San Francisco, California. And, and Black people felt inspired by saying, because this committee said to them, yes, we do value you. We do value you and what has happened to you. And even if you don't agree with the amount of money, it ain't no $5, it ain't no $5 deal. It's significant, the impact on, on Black people. So again, I'm, I'm proud. You know, I was already proud of the work we did on the slavery disclosure ordinance. Um, 
And I'm like the only I'm me and um me and what's the name Al Williams are the only two left alive who actually worked on it because uh, Ronald Colthurst was the third person that died that worked on it, um and uh including John Damu Damu and also Robert Smith that professed at Central State just past recently. The five of us did this, and so you know I was proud then, but I cannot explain to you what this like I I'm an academic I do other work. But nothing I've done is more important to me than this. Nothing I've ever done. My PhD, nothing I've done. My getting a PhD don't mean a damn thing to me compared to what reparations means to me. So I'm just thankful. I'm thankful that we were chosen, as you say, by God at this time to speak to this moment. And we're not finished speaking. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to each of you. We appreciate the the passion and commitment to this important body of work. And so appreciate each of you. Appreciate our HRC team. Director Davis, appreciate you. Um, and it's late in the game, but the game's not over. So thank you all very, very much. Let's close this item six and move to item seven, please. Item seven is general public comment. This is a discussion item. Members of the public may address the advisory committee on matters that are within the reparations jurisdiction and are not on today's agenda. Speakers shall address their remarks to the committee as a whole and not to individual committee members or department personnel. Thank you, sir. This is your moment. Yep. Can you approach so we can hear we can uh, hear you and turn we can turn on the mic and hello good afternoon my name is Marcel Jones Tassetto. Um I'm basically uh, pretty much coming back here been gone for a while me and my family were displaced from San Francisco about the nineties we we used to live up in um well, the Mission District the old Army Street. So um, a lot of this stuff, you know, I'm just listening. But as I go through the timeline, because my mother was born here in 1963, her birthday's coming up December 22nd. And recently, um, I'll say about 2008, 2009, she's lived down the street over there, Ninth Street in Natoma, and um, the little the, the senior citizen building. But she was um, displaced as well due to circumstances, so she had to move out the city again. The place that she's been born, she's born over there in General Hospital. Now they call it Zuckerberg and all that. We were all over there growing up and everything. I have brothers and sisters that went to Burton, Mission and everything. But by the time we got older and stuff, we was already gone. So my mother made it a point to come back here, always telling us about her history, you know, her San Francisco pride, everything. My grandfather building a church and his house over there in the Lakeview, because that's where she's from, the Lakeview district over there. So understanding that not even really, you know, embracing it and really caring about it at the time, but hearing his, hearing these stories and all that stuff and thinking about the people that came from here, thinking about the people that flew in here and made this place a city. I've been working here for seven years. So even by me not living here, which I do have a sister over there in Eddie Street in the Fillmore District, two of them in the West Side. So my family's still here and they're still in poverty. They're still in pain. My sister, two, three years ago, in Patrol Hill, it made TV. She got her throat slashed. Mm. Irena Jones, about, about three or four or five years ago. So with even just my family alone, I can empathize with anybody else that's been going through something that's for minority, poverty, anything. 
So that's all I like to, I like to say right now. I, I believe and I know just about the grace of God and an ability by all these people and the people, this will get done like yesterday. Thank you. So I appreciate everything at the time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other members of the public who would like to participate in public comment? Hi, my name is Daryl Kelly, and I just want to thank both groups, both the Human Rights Commission and the board, because this is a very important thing for San Francisco, and it's always Black folks put against Black folks when we have these things. I've seen it all my life. And I just want to say, if we can fight, we need to go after these big companies, Ford, Johnson and Johnson, all these companies that had took that slave money and made these companies what they are today. Now, I know there's a lot of stuff you have to go through, all kind of like, you know, red tape. But I think that after two years, this place should be completely filled up. This is my first meeting. Thank you, Freddie, for inviting me. But this place should be filled up after two years. So I think when the mayor said no, that was a big punch in people's stomachs, and they gave up. Why should I fight for this no more? But every group has been helping except us, where it's anti-Semitism, where it's hate crimes, you name it, they get the funding. We only ask for $4 million. $4 million, and couldn't even get that. So I am proud of this group. I will tell people about this group, and I know we have keep fighting. Do not let the mayor shut us down. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else attending this evening who would like to participate in general public comment? <laughs> Seeing none, general public comment is closed. Thank you very much. With that, we will move back to item number two. Um, since we can take advantage of a quorum. Thank you. Item number two is adoption of the November 13, 2023 regular meeting minutes. This is a discussion and possible action item. Um, it's a review and anticipated adoption of video recordings and meeting minutes from the African-American Reparations Advisory Committee's November 13, 2023 regular meeting. There will be public comment and committee comment on this item. Thank you. Let's go to public comment on this item. Are there any members of the public who would like to speak about the November 13, 2023 meeting minutes? Okay, I see none, Chair. Seeing none, public comment is closed. Um, members, I'd entertain a motion. Go I ahead. Have a, yes, uh, please go. An amendment needed to okay. the minutes. Please go. On page nine, where it says the mayor's office could visit Washington, D.C. and ask for a preference for eligible Black folks holding COPs to return Black to San Francisco, similar to the local preference. Um, I don't know what the interpretation of what I was saying, but it was more along the lines of that she already did that and that those type of things could be done on the federal level, but... I, I didn't say that she needs to do that because she already has. Got it. You have that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you for that amendment. With that amendment, I'd entertain a motion. 
for approval. Aye. Second. So moved by Member Carter, second by Reverend Brown. All in favor? That's where you say aye. Aye. Thank you. <laughs> Any opposed? Seeing none, uh, meeting minutes are adopted. Thank you very much. Call the final item, please. Item number eight is adjournment. Thank you very much. So um, in calling for adjournment, just want to remind us that uh, we are convening again on January 8th um, here in Chambers. Member Irving. So, hold on. Go ahead. I don't, I don't I don't know if I'm supposed to make a motion for this, but I'd like to adjourn in the name um, of Ronald Colthurst, and I'd like to read something about him. Please. It's OK. Um, so I'm going to read a, pu a public post made by his sister. And she said, it pains me to announce the passing of my big brother, Ronald Nathaniel Colthurst. He was a pillar of the community. He was a freedom fighter. He fought for the rights of people of color. He was a supporter of all of our local libraries, reading initiatives, and nonviolence. He was an advocate for educators. He went to every community meeting for 20 plus years. His heart was for our youth too. Ronald advocated for all, and this will be a huge void for our Visitation Valley community. And as someone who has worked with Mr. Colthurst, I'm going to echo every bit of what she said. Yes. Thank you. Member Barry? Yes, I would like to also um, I second that um, motion to adjourn in memory of Ronald Colthurst. He was my mentor. I used to meet with him every Friday. And um, please know that tomorrow Supervisor Walton is going to do an in memoriam and his family and the new formed Harriet Tubman Democratic Club has got a resolution to present at 3.30 tomorrow in Chambers and rest in peace. Um, that man right there is almost like one of them people where you, you don't have to make up nothing at their funerals. You know, you don't have to make up nothing. You know, he's just an amazing person. He knew the political system and I, I really feel like he, God is, we, we got an angel up there for real. And maybe even on this body and carrying out these reparations, we got somebody there. Thank you, Member Irving. Thank you for that motion and second. All in favor? Aye. Thank you guys so much for this evening's meeting. And thank you to community for coming out.